The thing about Drag Me to Hell, um, uh, don't you laugh, don't you laugh, Paul. I, I, I have nothing to say. (laughs) (laughs) Out when it comes to Drag Me to Hell, man. I, you know, I, I think we might want to consider changing the podcast name to the Drag Me to Hellcast. Or... What would that? What would that be? What would? What would a clever name for the Drag <laughs> Me to Hell podcast? I was going to say that wasn't very clever, but <laughs> the gist of the idea was there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Pod, cast me better? to hell. Yeah, I was thinking cast me to hell, or I don't know something with pod in it. I, don't, I got nothing. <laughs> All right, uh, listeners, welcome back to uh, Scream Addicts, Getting Hammered with Hammer. I am Jenks. I'm sitting here with uh, co-host Paul Farrell. Paul, how the hell are you? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Good deal. So um, thing one, and we're going to have a lot of things here in this opening to explain all sorts of things. Uh, but thing one is if I sound a little different, a little echoey, it's because I am uh, currently in southern Ohio. I am doing the best with the location I am in to record for you folks. Uh, but yeah, so I, if I don't sound uh, like my normal jinxy self, then uh, that's that's probably why. Apologies in advance for that. Thing two is... Um, well, so the movie we're going to be talking about this evening is Brides of Dracula. It's a great movie. It's one of my favorite Hammer movies of all time. It's actually tied with Frankenstein Created Woman as being my single favorite Hammer horror film. Um, <laughs> thing is, this is actually the second attempt at uh, doing a commentary for this movie because um, Paul and I already did this episode before and you will never hear it because um i lost the recording right after we did it um this is why drinking and podcasting together is not always the greatest idea so there is a whole like two and a half or three hour long episode of paul and i doing a commentary for brides of dracula um, you know, I, Paul talked about a movie he made once. I read him reviews back in German. It was a thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I probably got really personal, like in the last half of the podcast. I can't remember about what. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that that's what happened because that's what always happens when you get a few drinks in me. But all of those moments are lost, like uh, tears in rain. Um, so yeah, Paul, I apologize. I, I've already apologized to you. I apologize to the listeners. Now I apologize to everybody for the uh the Brides of Dracula episode that nobody will ever hear. It's it's an emotional thing. <laughs> it's gonna take some time to get over, but I think the work we'll do here tonight will will sort of help bridge that gap. You know, if we ever had to redo an episode, thank goodness it's Brides of Dracula. True. True. As opposed to Curse of the Werewolf. But, um, hey, hey now. Hey now. <laughs> okay, so thing number three is, um, folks listening at home, you, there is probably only going to be a week or two between the uh, the last drinking episode of Scream Addicts that you've listened to and this one. Uh, we may go back. I uh, actually have, and you may have already listened to it by now, uh, but I have a normal episode coming up soon. Uh, if, if you've already listened to it, I hope it was great. Um, but, uh, 
The thing is that Paul and I haven't actually podcasted together in about two months. See, the thing is, is we banked the first six, well, seven episodes of uh, Getting Hammered with Hammer, and we were just chugging right along every Monday evening at about 8 p.m. my time. Paul and I would hop on, we'd make a bunch of drinks, and, uh, well, you've heard the results of that. Well... Um, after Curse of the Werewolf and the, uh, the Margaritas, um, Paul, how do I put this? I think I nearly died. Um, <laughs> it was, it so, was an intense day for you. It was, uh, it. yeah, yeah, it sure was. Um, see what happened was before we began recording that episode, uh, you know, I had like a massive blender. Uh, you've seen Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood, you know, the, uh, the the sort of margarita blender that, uh, that Rick Dalton has. Well, imagine something like two and a half times that size. And I, I made enough margaritas to fill the damn thing. And, you know, I might have had a few drinks before we actually started recording. And then, you know, we, we did your drinking game, which damn near killed me that alone. And then, you know, we might have kept talking afterwards, and I was still drinking. And I woke up the next day and couldn't get out of bed. I had probably what was the worst hangover I've ever had in my life. I may have actually gotten alcohol poisoning. And it occurred to me that maybe... A drinking podcast where we nearly die is not the best thing to do. That's thing one. Thing two is, um, well, I don't know. I, we we haven't had much of a response in the way of, uh, you know, people telling us whether or not they like the drinking games or they've joined in or whatnot. Listeners, I know you're out there. We see the numbers, but uh, you're, you're a quiet lot. And I, that's okay. I respect that. But <laughs> what we're going to do, since nobody seems to be like super jazz necessarily about the drinking game aspect of it and considering it nearly um fucking killed me uh paul and i are going to rein in the getting hammered portion of getting hammered with hammer what we're going to do we're still going to drink we're still going to provide commentaries for awesome hammer horror films we're just not going to do the drinking games and try and kill one another every week and we 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 hope you all understand uh, so with all of that out of the way, if you haven't tuned out already, if I haven't bored you to death with all of this prefacing what is coming up next, um, Paul, why don't we do yeah. what we normally do? Why don't we have a drink? Why don't we, uh, catch up and talk about, uh, I don't know, life and, uh, recent watches and whatnot. What have you been, uh, what have you been doing? We, I should note, we just passed Halloween. It is now November 2nd. It's sad as hell, but spooky season is over. We've gone yes. the entire month of October not talking about uh, what we've been watching. So catch me up, man. What was your, uh, what was your October like? What have you seen recently? <clears throat> yes. Um, so I've watched a lot of movies. Uh, and I just want to point out now that uh, we've, we've sort of transformed the show, that means I can drink beer every episode, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. So I uh, just want to kind of do a quick callback and say that I am enjoying a Stone IPA, uh, which was an episode one drink of choice, uh, and it's delightful. Um, having said that, uh, yeah, I mean, October was full of horror movie watches for me. Um, I think I clocked like 63 movies. Uh, 63 horror movies Holy in October shit. this year. Yeah, I went I went pretty hard. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to list 63 movies for you, um, but I will talk about a couple. Um, the first one I wanted to call out uh, is a new movie. 
uh, relatively new that I streamed called Spontaneous. Have you heard of this or seen this? I've movie? heard of it. I have not watched it yet. So it's. I hesitated a little bit because I wouldn't call it. It's not like a straight horror film, but it but it has uh, enough horror in it to be worth mentioning on a cast like this. So easiest way to describe it is it's sort of a teenage coming of age story, um, comedy drama kind of thing. Uh, only there's also the added element that kids in the high school are randomly exploding, <laughs> like <laughs> spontaneously exploding. Um. And that sounds crazy, and it is crazy, and, you know, for all of the sort of melodramatic teenage things that it explores, when someone blows up, it's it's really grotesque <laughs> uh, and bloody, and it's, yeah, that it goes sort of full horror in those moments. Um, but I absolutely adored this movie. Uh, it was just it's hilarious it's touching it's moving it's upsetting at times there's a sequence in it that is 100 percent one of the most like just viscerally upsetting sequences i've seen in a movie in a while and mainly because the movie does such a good job of building out these characters that you really care for and it also has that that hook of like what's happening to them and you know what what are they gonna do and how how is this going to be resolved. Um, but, you know, by, by providing sort of this unknown assailant in the form of spontaneous, it's not really spontaneous combustion because they don't blow up into flames. They literally just kind of pop like a balloon. Um, so it actually doesn't even like damage items around them. It's just like a lot of blood and viscera. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it sort of ties into that thing that a lot of teenage movies like to do, which is like present young people with mortality um, and sort of like living their lives while they can, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of that. There's like a whole slew of movies where there's a teenager who has cancer or there's a teenager who's very ill with something that's causing them not to be able to live a full life. This movie kind of accomplishes what a lot of those movies accomplish, but in an extreme way, that I found just really, really entertaining, interesting, and and moving. And it has a really great sort of ending that kind of feels very now <laughs> and very needed. Uh, kind of, in a way, there's there's sort of a pep talk nature to getting through difficult things that this movie presents. So, highly recommend it. It's, it's a very, very good movie. Damn it. Okay, you've sold me on it. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Um, let's see for me, what do I want to choose? Uh, we'll talk about what, what do you want to say? Like maybe three, three total? Three's good. All right. So my first one, uh, I may have mentioned this on a previous show. Maybe it was the one that, uh, <laughs> has been erased from history. Um, I've been watching, actually I just finished up the third day on HBO, which is, uh, one of the best damn television series I've seen this year, actually in a few years, probably maybe the best. Uh, it's this great folk horror tale uh, that's kind of divided into two halves. There are six episodes and they have two, three episode arcs. One uh, is set in the summer uh, and is actually called Summer. Uh, stars Jude Law as a man who finds himself on an island 
uh, inhabited by folks who have an interesting religion they follow. And uh, he is a man who's lost his son. He's still kind of dealing with the grief of that. And he basically gets embroiled in this, uh, well, these bizarre goings-on on this island while he's just trying to get off. It's uh, isolated from the mainland by a causeway. And uh, he isn't able to get off the island before the road goes underwater. And uh, as a result, he is stuck there uh, for a day. And uh, the events that occur are sort of like really quietly chilling. Uh, There's nothing overtly violent that happens to a point, but there's always the threat of violence. There's always the threat of something horrible happening. The, The people who made this show are obviously throwing nods to uh, other folk horror tales, like mostly the Wicker Man, certainly. So they kind of play with your knowledge of these types of stories to keep your anxiety high. But it's just I, the acting is absolutely superb. The story is great and where it goes. Uh, I should mention the uh, the second half is called Winter, and it's an entirely different arc set on the same island featuring uh, Naomi Harris as a woman who brings her two young daughters to the island for... Uh, Basically, her daughter is kind of like an archaeology enthusiast, and so the island and its strange history are kind of a draw, but uh, there's another kind of slightly darker reason why the mother has uh, come to this island. And it's great because all the background characters continue from the first arc, and uh, ultimately the two halves come together in a really fascinating way to you know, make you realize that you've been watching one story the entire time. And it's just... It's so gorgeously made and so beautifully acted. And the story is, uh, you know, it turns intriguing and terrifying and kind of beautiful and, you know, it has loads of heart. And again, it's, it's, it might be the best damn thing I've seen all year. So if anyone out there listening, if you haven't taken the plunge on HBO Max yet, I mean, my God, do it. This year, they've, they've been killing it. Uh, HBO Max has done... What have we had? We've had The Third Day, which is excellent. We've had Perry Mason. We've had uh, the documentary series All Begun in the Dark and The Vow. Uh, Lovecraft Country, which is fantastic, even though it didn't quite stick the landing. So uh, definitely pull the trigger and just check out all of that amazing television to be found there. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Um, <clears throat> so I'll keep it with new stuff uh, just because I watched several streaming things uh, i checked out the new craft mm-hmm. the craft legacy uh which i think you you watched right i did yes that was actually going to be one of the things that i talked about so i'm glad oh, you're mentioning sorry. <laughs> no you're good you're good well well well, well yeah we got it um so yeah, I watched it on Halloween. That was one of my Halloween marathon movies, and uh, it was my wife's pick. Uh, and it's she loves the original craft, so that was kind of like a logical thing. And I don't know for me. I mean, I've heard very different opinions. I've heard it's great. I've heard it wasn't great. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought. I mean, I thought it was a really good update that was really aware of some like a lot of the it felt very purposeful with how it handled like sexual politics um especially when compared to the original i also liked that the all of the characters were i don't know i felt they were far more empathetic (laughs) than the first movie like they they weren't acting out of like completely selfish aims 
um, you know, which realistically were in, in kind of the original. Um, I liked that they were sort of good people through and through. Yeah. And that kind of shows up several key moments in the film. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what's what's kind of your take on it? I honestly, I dug the hell out of it. It's, uh, you know, I've been waiting for this kind of movie for a while. You know, in the mid-aughts there, uh, you know, we had that great resurgence of sort of, uh, you know, 70s sensibilities uh, coming back in horror movies. And then not long after, we had kind of... Uh, you know, the 80s and, you know, the Carpenter font and synth music and, uh, you know, throwbacks to all sorts of 80s movies, which is great. You know, I had a blast, but, you know, I grew up in the 90s, so I've been waiting on this period to finally come around, and I hadn't seen it happening. I've, you know, plenty of people have said, oh, clearly the 90s are making a resurgence, and I'm just like, where? Where is it making a resurgence? I haven't seen it yet. I have not seen anything. I, you know, it's not enough to tell me that Scream Five is coming to make sure. me think that we're going back to the '90s. It's not enough that you know James Wan is doing, and I know what he did last summer television series. Although I got to admit, I'm looking forward to both of those projects. Oh yeah. You know, I'm not. You know, it's not enough to simply carry on those stories. Like I want to return to the sort of, you know, the aesthetic pleasures of '90s movies, which I think a lot of people don't really even recognize or or think that that decade had anything to offer but i gotta tell you man as modern as this sequel this reboot whatever you want to call it as modern as it seemed storytelling wise which was something that i really appreciated about it the aesthetic was pure 90s like it felt like a 90s movie it was shot it moved it had the atmosphere of like ev- everything felt authentic. The music, like the uh, the, it's weird to say. It, it this, opens with even... an Alanis Morissette song. It did open <laughs> with Alanis. Oh, it was know? it was incredible. I agree with you. It was incredibly nineties. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the yeah. clothing, like nothing really. There was a very kind of timeless feel to it in a way where, yeah, they had. They had cell phones, and obviously it's a modern sure. story, but yeah, it also yeah, yeah. felt like it was firmly set like 25 years ago at the same time, which is perfect for a follow-up to a you know quintessential like mid-90s horror movie. Um, I did think it's interesting that what you said, that the characters in this are far more empathetic. I love the fact that – and mild spoilers for, uh, for anyone who still wants to see The Craft Legacy. I'm not going to try and spoil too much, but some things we just have to talk about. I thought it was really interesting that it hits all of the beats that you're expecting a craft sequel to. And honestly, I got to tell you, from the very beginning, I was only expecting kind of like the normal legacy sequel slash reboot slash direct-to-video, even though it wasn't meant to be direct-to-video. But I was expecting like uh, uh, just a riff, just kind of a carbon copy of the first movie. You know, change the characters' names, but essentially follow the same beats, right? And what's so damn smart about it is that it does exactly that in the first act. And then it completely zigs when you expect it to zag. I thought it was a great message to have all of the uh, the women sort of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they have a falling out, certainly. But there's no backstabbing. There is no, you know, it, it's weird. You know, at first glance, you look back at the original movie and you think that it is kind of like a girl power movie. But it's really not at all. Like when when yeah. three of the girls are evil, <laughs> then you can't really call it that. I, and I was so, gonna say, yeah, that movie's tough. I, I love the original craft. Um, I do I'll, too. I'll say I, that. But but it's tough to care about that group. 
Mm-hmm. I care about the protagonist, but it's hard to feel empathy or as I guess as much for the other th- three and especially the two that you'd want to care about who aren't like the primary villain of the movie. But in this one, yeah, like you're saying, every every one of those characters is like a good person who's trying their best to do the right thing throughout the whole film. That never wavers. I mean, I guess you could argue that there's a there's there's sort of a a moment like the the protagonist. What what kind of causes? I not causes, but what they sort of perceive as causing a lot of the issues in in the movie is a moment like a lapse of judgment in yeah. the in the protagonist's uh, sort of arc. And even that lapse isn't evil by any means. You know, it's 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 very much a like what a 15 or 16 year old might wish, you know, if they were falling in love with someone, you know, it's it's not even it's it's sort of innocent in its own way. Yeah. And I don't think, um, you know, the fact that there is a falling out there and again, I'm trying to dance around spoilers, but I don't think it's it, the rift amongst all of the members uh, of this coven comes not because of that decision, I don't think, but because of the fallout, which ultimately isn't that character's fault. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I I do. And plus you mentioned like, you know, the falling in love, but like there is a love story in this that's actually kind of fascinating to me. And there's a character that is sort of, um, you know, as I was watching the movie, I'm like, is this genuine? Is this a genuine love story if one of the characters is brainwashed? And then it occurred to me at a certain point, I'm like, well, he's not brainwashed. Like, no. they're not – they didn't make him fall in love with anybody. If anything, like, you know, he is a guy who's grown up in an atmosphere of, like, just, you know, uh, toxic masculinity. He's a guy who's, you know, sort of been corrupted by all the male figures around him. And so what they do to him, it's not brainwashing. It's almost like they restore him to factory settings, you know, like they, they wash away yeah. all of that shit. And I love that. It really reminded me of another remake that people, again, a lot of people didn't like, but I loved uh, the black, the black Christmas remake. Yes. Um, and even they're very different movies, <laughs> but, it, but a lot of similarities now makes that, those, that movie and this movie does something really smart where it makes like what would normally be subtext into just text. You know, there's literally a group of men like brainwashing the men of the town to be, you know, just the definition of a toxic man. Like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not sort of subtly woven into society. It's just, these guys are doing that on purpose <laughs> and making everyone horrible and toxic and and they're sort of and without even realizing they were challenging that in some ways. And again, yeah, I guess we're getting a little bit into spoilers, so I'm, I'm trying to tread lightly. But what they wish of this this bad, this horrible sort of bully that they want to impact isn't that he becomes nice. It's that he's able to sort of achieve his highest self. That's kind of how they phrase it. It's like. We want you to be your highest, the the highest version of yourself, which I like because that's just saying like, this is, this is what he has the capable capability of being where the right chips to fall into place. He's just skipping the work that gets him there, um, which 
you know, you could still argue that that's problematic for that character. But I think what the movie does really smartly is it sort of shows that, like, if people are can get there, it's going to be a lot easier to sort of communicate with them and see their story in a different light. Because then suddenly he has this really compelling story <laughs> that you're kind of like, oh. You realize where <laughs> this person you know, that you hated seconds ago, <laughs> but, and he was he. Yeah. They they managed to turn him in in the space of ten minutes from one of the most convincing and utterly you know so much of a bastard of a yeah. bully to somebody who you know and and he was a bully who wasn't able to articulate why he felt that way and why he was lashing out and why he was that you know and once again once they kind of reset him. Yeah, he gives kind of like an account of his life, and you realize, like, oh my god, that's that's how that guy wound up there, you know? Yeah, I love so, it. I, I, but I. That said, for all of the good things that I could say about the movie, and we've said plenty, certainly. I would recommend that people check it out. I, I had very low expectations for it, and it really, really surprised the hell out of me. That said, the movie to me does fumble in the final 10 minutes. I, I think the climax is incredibly rushed, incredibly like underdeveloped. Like it, it, I would be surprised if there wasn't some sort of like heavy editing done, or if there were reshoots at the last moment, or I don't know what the hell happened, but the first, you know, the, the first 90% of the movie is so well made and, you know, so measured in its approach to its story and characters. And then you get to the final 10 minutes and it's just like, it, it feels like we're missing chunks of movie in that final act. And I don't know why that is. I, I would be fascinated to find out. But um, but that said, that's not enough to, uh, to ruin the film for me. I still give it a thumbs up. And uh, I really hope we get another one, especially given the, uh, the, the, the final reveal in the, the last couple of minutes. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm hoping a, there's a Blu-ray eventually and maybe there will be, you know, some context around that. I, I do think the the climax is rushed and it's it feels a bit anticlimactic in a lot of ways for the, the villain sort of the, the reveal of the villain and the battle that ensues is kind of like secondary feels like a second thought as opposed to the thing the movie's been building towards. Yeah. Um. So Although I it agree, is but... funny, uh, I was talking to John Squires about the movie, and he liked it too. But uh, you know, I was—we were talking about the uh, the sort of '90s aesthetic. I was just like the clothing, the music, the feel, like the pacing, the the photography, and he he cut in with the special effects. And I was like, <laughs> oh my god, that actually—you know—I don't know if it was yeah. intentional, but nevertheless, there is there is this. <sighs> There's this really kind of terrible morphing sequence, and then there is some really dodgy CG fire, you know. But at the same time, like if the movie were made in the mid '90s, that's exactly what that shit would look like. So yeah, that's true. You know, I kind of yeah, it made me feel <laughs> the whole, better like, about glow the movie around them. Yeah, that yeah. that is very '90s. Yeah, you're, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that being an actual like purposeful decision. I doubt I mean, it was, but I'm gonna believe that it was. It's it's a better way of thinking about it. <laughs> I'm gonna go that way too. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess you know since we both covered that one, um, and at length, I guess my final one I'll mention. Um, <sighs> I I watched Hubie Halloween. Um, I also have seen that. 
Okay. Uh, good. So uh, I'm curious. I'm well, very curious about well, your thoughts. Here, here's the thing. I am not the biggest Adam Sandler fan. Whenever he does, uh, you know, drama, like, I, I mean, my God, Uncut Gems, I thought it was, uh, the, the crying scene aside, I thought he was fucking great in that movie. Um, sure. You know, when he does stuff like, um, you know, Spanglish or Punch Drunk Love, I think he's fantastic. I even like a lot of his comedies when he plays more of a straight man. Um, whenever he pulls what I like to call Mr. Goofy voice, it's such a, 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 a turnoff to me as a viewer to try and put up with that, especially considering it's like, dude, we've seen you do this before, and it wasn't funny the first time. I, I, I know I'm in the minority because a lot of people love it when he does that. So, hey, great, you know, whatever. But it, it, what kills me about Hubie Halloween is that you have if – you, if you broke down – like the the writing in Hubie Halloween, like the uh, the story, like it's it had the potential to be a fucking great like I need to revisit this every Halloween kind of family super fun horror comedy, you know. Um, and it was beautifully shot. Holy shit, the movie is gorgeous. It has a great cast. I just think it's two fatal flaws are Sandler's performance, which I didn't even ultimately like. There's something about that character beyond the dumb fucking voice that he uses that's still kind of – and it is really fucking dumb. But there is something beyond <laughs> that voice that he, he's still kind of endearing to me, uh, even beyond that. But I had to work. To get there, rather he did for me to actually still like him through that. That's thing one. Thing two, it just I wish they had reined in a lot of the really silly stuff, like the 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 Swiss Army fucking uh, thermos. You know, it's just that's so fucking oh, dumb. I mean, if it had been like a full on, and that's the thing. That's what I don't understand about some of his movies. It's like if you're gonna do that kind of thing and be a straight up kids movie. Then lean into that. But if you're going to be a little edgier, if you're going to be like for a, a more grown-up set, which I think this movie kind of rode that line. It could have been something along the lines of The Monster Squad, where it is a kid's movie, but it has a little bite to it. It has a little edge. It's a little dangerous. And so everybody can enjoy that movie, right? And with Hubie Halloween, I, I overall, believe it or not, I for all of the shit that I've talked about it for the last minute and a half – I actually really did like the movie, but it, to me, if you just did away with that voice and did away with the, the 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 really silly stuff, I think it could have been a minor classic. As it is, it's one of those movies where I was like, holy shit, I actually enjoyed it. So will I be revisiting it next Halloween? Probably not. But overall, I would say, hey, if you're missing Halloween at this point, you could do worse. So, um, and I'll, I'll comment because, uh, you know, I've, I've seen this. Movie. So my litmus test for Hubie Halloween, when I was, when people are asking me if they should watch it is I ask, do you like the water boy? And because I feel like Hubie Halloween is basically a sequel to the water boy. <laughs> um, it is, it's, it's literally had, had he, he is Bobby Boucher. He is like, he just yeah. is that character grown up and instead of being about water it's about halloween now having said that i 
fucking love the water boy i am that guy i'm the guy that you were talking about that loves like m sandler's stupidest shit i love his dumb comedies i adore them um i grew up you know billy madison happy gilmore uh water boy wedding singer all of those movies like are comedy classics for me and they're comfort food so for me hubie halloween like it it when I when I finished it because I had heard some things about it and I so I went in kind of eh, I don't know it's easily up there with like it's going to be an every year movie for me easily like I'm I loved it I watched it three times this year oh my god <laughs> yeah I I loved it chicks like I I know I I know I, know I probably sound like an idiot because everything no, you said no. is true I, I'm not like disagreeing with the fact that like is Adam Sandler's dumb voice like kind of a stupid uh sort of like juvenile thing like it is but it, there's just something about i i don't know i just i i gravitate towards it and i think it's really funny and i and i love i love all of the comedians in that movie i like i laughed at every joke for the most part all of the running gags got funnier as they went for me i mean i am a slapstick guy like i like you know for example, uh, whenever I get together with my brother, we watch like slapstick comedies. Like we just watched uh, Wrongfully Accused, which is a uh, uh, a Leslie Nielsen spoof from the mid 90s. Like most people would watch that movie and be like, what the hell is this? And I just can't stop laughing when I watch movies like that. And and for me, Adam Sandler kind of fits into that category. Um, now, in recent years, I haven't liked a lot of his stuff. So this one also felt the most like those old movies he used to make. Um, and I think it's funny that a lot of people think he wasn't like trying on this one. And I was like, I actually think this is the first time he's tried comedically in years. I mean, I think this is the first time he's given like real effort to comedy, um, you know, since gosh, maybe big daddy, if that, I mean, and even big daddy wasn't one of his best ones. I would rank this higher than big daddy, but it, 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 I thought it was sort of a nice return to form for sort of classic dumb comedy Sandler and add to that the fact that it has so much Halloween iconography. You know, that movie is just bathed in Halloween um, in all the best ways. So I hear what you're saying and I totally respect it. Um, but for me, it's one that's going to be on the regular rotation. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned wrongfully accused, though. Like, I, I love movies like that, but those are also movies like, you know, you think about something like The Naked Gun. The Naked Gun announces straight away that it's, you know, it's a full-on spoof. And right. I, I guess what what bugs me about Hubie Halloween and some of his other things is, like, he tries to ride that line. He tries to have it both ways where it's like, no, I'm going to play this kind of straight, like a straight comedy but we're going to have moments that exist in like a spoof universe. You know what I mean? Like I, and so that's, what's kind of jarring to me. That's why I can't fully, why I couldn't get fully into Hubie Halloween. I wish I could because what I liked about it, I loved again, the, the look of the movie, it's a beautifully made film. Like it really is. That's weird to say, but I, I, I totally agree. I think for me, like I said, and I'll, I, I think some of it just comes from nostalgia. You know, I grew up, loving those movies and thinking they were hilarious. And, and this feels like those movies, um, you know, like I said, the first thing I thought of was like, Oh my gosh, it's Waterboy too. that. And I'm so happy about that. <laughs> Waterboy. 
Um, and so anyway, but I, I can't argue with people that don't feel it's a weird movie. Cause I think like the people that love it aren't wrong. And the people that hate it aren't wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's all of the complaints people have are like completely accurate. I feel like it's, I am somehow in not, the middle and I'm wrong because of that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. Uh, but no, I mean, for me, Hubie and, and, and Twitter was like so confusing on whether it was good or not. Like I was seeing people <laughs> say like, oh, it's the best Halloween movie ever. It's like, oh, this is terrible. It's garbage, you know. And, and so when I went into it, my expectations were kind of low. So that might have helped. Um, but yeah, no, I just like I said, I watched it multiple times and then I put it on again on Halloween. because I was like, oh, I got to watch this again because this is so perfectly Halloweeny for me. So, um, but yeah. I tell you what, I thought of this scene that perfectly encapsulates why I have an issue with the movie, and it just now occurred to me, looking at the television. The love story, which is a stretch in the movie, but is still kind of sweet. Sure. Yeah, it, it is, because, I mean, you kind of buy, and that's the thing, like, Sandler, again, is kind of endearing as that character, even for the voice. But, and Julie Bowen is great. And, you know, I, I love the idea that, each of these people secretly had a crush on one another and, you know, it takes the crazy events of this movie to kind of bring them together at the end. Okay. So here's my problem with the entire approach of the movie boiled down to one scene. So we have had this really sweet kind of love story at the end. He's being interviewed, you know, and he mentions her or whatever, and she is watching on television and she like moves up to the TV and kisses it. And it's like, Oh, that's kind of like weirdly sweet and kind of goofy and endearing, you know, much like this love story has been. But then, like, the kiss continues, and it does, like, a TV point of view of her open mouth and her lulling yeah. tongue. Like, and I was just like, why? Why Why go, you know, it's okay to go up to the line, but you, it's okay sometimes to even step over the line. But that movie, at points, just dives and tucks and rolls right <laughs> over the line. And then it keeps That's... racing in the opposite direction. Like, I just don't get it sometimes. Yeah. No, I mean, and that, that joke did not land. I agree. I mean, but it's a happy Madison movie. Not every joke's going to land. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, like I love, uh, you know, Happy Gilmore, but not every joke in that movie is funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, I don't think I've ever seen a movie where every joke is great. I, I think that the best comedies are going to take risks and roll the dice. And I, I do think, like, holding on a joke too long is a very common thing, especially these days. That seems to be like a modern thing that I think family guy perpetuated. It's like, Oh, hold on the joke forever. And eventually it becomes funny again. Um, that's just kind of an issue plaguing modern comedy, but Peter Griffin holding his knee. Yeah, right. It, it, ah, it fucking ooh, like ah. infected. Yeah. That infected like everything that's come after it. And, and sometimes that works. But a lot of times it doesn't. Fucking um, Seth so, MacFarlane. Yeah, I love Seth MacFarlane for certain things, but I hate him for others. Um, <laughs> I think that's I think that's how we all feel. Uh, but anyway, no, I mean I agree. I mean that joke isn't great, and there's other jokes that aren't great. But for every not great joke, I think there's five that really work. So like like the shirts his mother is wearing are hilarious. Yeah, I, like, I agree. <laughs> yeah, those are great. Like, and and it's such a good sight gag like throughout the film that every time I see a new one, it's even funnier because now you're waiting for it and you're wondering what it's going to be like stuff like that. Like it, I actually liked all the shit being thrown at him like, <laughs> while I was riding his bike. And I thought progressively as the movie went, it got funnier, you know, in the first scene I was like, eh, this is okay. It's okay. Joke. And then by like the end, I'm like, Oh, I can't wait to see what they throw at him. 
Um, and then the the punchline at the end where where anyway, yeah, we don't have to get into this. We're, this is a Hubie Halloween podcast now. Um, where he says like his mother's standing behind them or something, <laughs> and she's standing right behind you. <laughs> anyway, it's it's there's lots of great little gags in the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, not not all of it works. All right, is that is that our limit? Are we done? Are we talking fine. about? One yeah, I mean, since we both talked about that and okay. craft, I think that kind of counts. All right, I will say one thing: since we mentioned Seth MacFarlane, it is worth noting uh, for this October season that MacFarlane produced an adaptation of Clyde Barker's *The Books of Blood* uh, for Hulu. Uh, Brandon Braga wrote and directed. I really dug the movie. If you're a Barker fan, give it a shot. Let me know what you think. Like, tweet at us. Let me know. Paul, did you see it or no? I have not seen it yet. I, You know, it got really mixed reviews, uh, which kind of blew my mind because I, it's some of the best Barker we've gotten in ages. And, uh, you know, I saw a lot of people online saying like, oh, this doesn't really feel like Clive Barker. This isn't really Clive Barker. And I'm thinking like, no, it it really, it is. It, it absolutely, I mean, the, the, uh, title story is pulled directly from him. You know, it's an adaptation. Sure. You know, um, but I, I guess part of it is there is new material that never appeared in any of the, uh, the books of blood, you know, that anthology. So maybe that was an issue for people, but I gotta say the, uh, the major new story that they add, uh, which features Britt Robertson in the lead is fucking fantastic. And where it winds up and, it doesn't necessarily feel like a Barker story to begin with. You know, it's kind of like almost a straightforward thriller at a certain point. But then as the story goes on, it starts getting much darker and much more twisted. And by the time you leave that story and leave that character, it's maybe as Barker as Barker gets. Uh, not just in how twisted it is, not just in how scary it is, but even thematically, like it's Barker through and through. So again, if you haven't seen it, it's on Hulu folks, check it out and tweet at me and let me know if you think I am uh, right or wrong for that. So that's cool. All right. So I guess, uh, Paul, you're drinking stone IPA for some reason, and I am drinking (laughs) a, uh, uh, agree to disagree, but, um, it's the Hubie Halloween of drinks. Um, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you find it as empathetic as the main character in Drag Me to Hell? No. <laughs> uh, I'm, Brown I'm is starting terrible. too early. Starting uh, too early here. Yep. Yeah. We got to leave that for about 45 minutes in. Um, so let's see. I am drinking a Nutty Irishman. So, folks, uh, I, I, I have no indication that you've been playing along at home. But uh, for the hell of it, I'll go ahead and give you the recipe if you want to drink what I'm drinking instead of the swill that Paul is drinking right now. A Nutty Irishman is made by mixing three parts Bailey's Irish cream, a one part Frangelico, and a splash of half and half. And it is delightful. Um, so... I guess we're going to watch some Brides of Dracula again, Paul. Um, how are, you how sound are you so excited. Well, no, you know what? I love this movie. If there were any Hammer horror film that I was going to rewatch, I mean, this would definitely be it. This or, yeah. again, Frankenstein Created Woman. Um, I, <laughs> I am away from my collection right now. I'm in southern Ohio, but I did manage to scrounge up a DVD copy from an old box set. Uh, I think the Universal put out. So I'm going to be watching on DVD. Paul, what are you watching? 
Uh, I am watching it on the, there was a universal uh, Hammer Horror Blu-ray box set that came out that had um, about, what, eight, nine titles on it? And uh, most of them have been acquired and put out by Scream Factory at this point, uh, including this one soon. I think about a week, maybe a week. I was going to say, we're we're on the cusp of like. I know, that's the most frustrating part. It's like, oh, we almost have a Scream disc. Um, But anyway, uh, yeah, so I'm watching the Blu-ray that Universal put out. on that set. Good deal. So I'm on the DVD. Um, folks, if you want to queue it up and watch along with us, basically go to the black frame, the very first second of the movie, hit pause, and we're going to do a countdown and press play together. Ready, everyone? We are going... Oh, that's another thing, Paul. Hmm. I've been listening to some of our episodes that we banked. I sound obnoxious as hell, even when I'm not drinking. I don't know how you've been doing it all these episodes, man. I think you're fine. I, well, so I appreciate that. Like, I, I, I honestly think the real me is closer in line to, like, the, the guy on all of the other episodes when I'm just interviewing people. Like, in normal life, I am, um, you know, a bit more soft-spoken. You know, I'm not as uh, – but this, for whatever reason, I guess just the idea that it's a drinking podcast or whatever, my Mr. Hyde comes out. I My voice sounds just a couple of steps away from like a chain-smoking cookie monster. Uh, I'm really loud. I'm obnoxious as hell. When I drink, it gets even worse. Um, so I'm very curious what the long-term damage to uh, whatever sort of image I have out there is going to be, um, if any at all. Uh, so we'll see. Fortunately, nobody's hate tweeted at me yet, but, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll keep it up and see how that goes. Anyway, folks, <laughs> we are on the black frame here. Let's count down. We're going to press play in five, four, three, two, one, play. All right. Universal International. Love I'm to not, see that. Not going to make the MST3K joke again. But it's a great one. Look one. at that frame. That is gorgeous. Even their title cards right off the bat. The font is wonderful. You know, people always talk about the Carpenter font. I don't know why we don't talk more about the Bride's font. Yeah. Damn it. Look at that. I want, I want to see some Bride's font on current modern day movies. The Brides of Dracula. God, I love this. I love everything about Hammer Horror. And I think everything that I love about Hammer Horror is perfectly sort of encapsulated in this particular movie. Um, This is the most hammer that hammer ever hammered. I think, am I wrong for thinking that you're not wrong? Uh, It is incredibly hammer. And I mean, it, it came at a time when hammer, I mean, this was like hammer had really proven itself. It had done, incredibly well you know this was the first follow-up to horror of dracula uh, or dracula if you're just looking at that version um and this was a a big movie for them you know this this was an important movie and they as as most of these early big movies did got together pretty much all the big hammer personalities that are you know important um sans christopher lee because he pretty much just wouldn't do it <laughs> and I'm kind of uh, glad in a way because I do not get the feeling that, and maybe this is just me, maybe this is pure conjecture, I don't know, but 
I think the reason this movie is so damn good might be due in some small part to Christopher Lee's absence because everybody, this whole production is firing on all cylinders. You have Sangster, you have Fisher, you have Peter Cushing. Uh, you have everybody pulling together to, my God, look at that carriage shot, you know, racing. Yeah. This is, this movie is, uh, we, we've, we've talked a lot about Terrence Fisher on this podcast, but I think this movie is like the best example of one of the best examples of his capabilities as a director. Um, and I, I just wonder if people, you know, felt that they had to raise the bar for themselves because they weren't going to be able to lean on Christopher Lee's you know, participation in the film. You know, they they have a movie that's called The Brides of Dracula and they don't have Dracula in it. So they, by God, needed to make a fantastic film. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the name of the game with Hammer was that often they had to do more with less. And a lot of times the challenges that less money or whatever constrictions they had posed forced a level of creativity that may not have been there otherwise. And this script is really interesting because it was like written and rewritten a bunch of times by a bunch of different people and was even being rewritten daily by Terrence Fisher on set. Like he was changing the scripts and scenes and things. And the, the initial script had Lee in it and that was what was pitched and sort of sold to universal. Like, Hey, yeah, we're going to do a Dracula sequel. Lee is in this. And then Lee told them they weren't going to do it. And they sort of had to kind of under the rug change it and still deliver and that's i i believe uh from what i read one of the reasons it was still called like dracula or brides of dracula because they wanted to give the impression that it was a dracula movie even though it wasn't gonna be um and kind of get people to give it a chance um even though it wouldn't have maybe the titular villain that they were looking for you know, it's funny. I wonder if there was ever an opportunity with this franchise for it to, you know, when you look at the Frankenstein franchise, <laughs> it's great because the Frankenstein franchise is about Frankenstein. It's not about Frankenstein's monster, you know? So yeah, in that way, I think their Frankenstein cycle is unique compared to, say, you know, any other attempt to, well, I don't know how many Frankenstein franchises we've had, but... uh you know, certainly compared to what Universal did with the, uh, the the character, you know, where it was all about Karloff, or at least the Karloff version of that character eventually played by other people. But Hammer did their own thing. Equally, I wonder if there ever could have been an alternate version of events where this franchise did not follow Dracula, but it followed Van Helsing. You know, we get Van Helsing in most of the movies anyway. He didn't pop up in uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, but that movie's an overall disappointment anyway. Um but, you know, I kind of wish that we had just gotten the Chronicles of Van Helsing, you know, from this point on. Imagine him, you know, fighting other vampires, fighting other creatures entirely, you know? Um, yeah, and and the trajectory of this franchise actually was to be Dracula-less, um, because Kiss of the Vampire was supposed to be Dracula 3. Um, that, that was supposed, that was initially sold and intended to be the third in this cycle. And again, it wasn't going to have Lee in it. Like they were, they were just going to continue making vampire films. And initially they talked about, you know, it being a, uh, you know, Cushing being involved and then it sort of became its own thing. Um, sort of in response to a lot of the underperformance of like some of the Fisher films that had come out before it. But it's kind of interesting that that was the intention was to kind of keep going 
without Dracula. You know, and I kind of love that idea because uh, I believe that Cushing's Van Helsing, you know, that's 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 a Monster Hunter that don't miss, man. Like, you know, I believe <laughs> that if he put down Dracula once, that'd be the end of it. You know, we should t- we should talk. I, I yeah, I agree. And we should talk about the uh, Hammer Pub here. The Hammer uh, Pub. We've and, we've. And- We've gotten so many hammer pubs, and they're all kind of. I want to drink in every one of these damn things. Oh, yeah, know? they look so welcoming. <laughs> should we re? Since we're no longer getting hammered with hammer, should we rebrand this podcast the Hammer Pub? I I would be fine with that. I okay. I still think that's a better name. <laughs> <laughs> not that getting hammered with hammer is not a good name, but I love the Hammer Pub. That's just I love, such a. Good... I love my puns, Paul. You have to I forgive know me. You do. I know you do. Um, <laughs> This movie, though, really, we've talked in a couple of the movies leading up to this about how they started to embrace, like, weird, like, lighting in the scene. Like, color, like, like there's red light kind of in that back room back there that doesn't make a ton of sense. There's kind of purple light. Um, there's a lot of, like, really interesting colors that they're starting to pump into different scenes that don't have a logical source. Like, there's kind of purple light to the side of her, you know, and I, I think that really makes this, the look of the film more dynamic and atmospheric. And Fisher was doing that way ahead of horror in general. Yeah. I mean, you can see probably the roots of like Mario Bava and, yes, you know, yeah, eventually sure. like all the jolly, you know, um, and I love it. There's something kind of, um, there's something kind of wonderfully like EC comics about that too. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It does feel very comic booky. Um, uh, here we are. The Baroness. This old bat. <laughs> I, I think, and okay, this is weird because I'm starting to like have deja vu. <laughs> our conversation. <laughs> and I'm starting to be like, Oh, I shouldn't say that. I already said that. And I'm like, wait, no, I didn't say that because that recording has gone. Whenever I see her, to me, she looks, she looks like a Disney villain. Like oh she God, looks really? like a freaking like, just she walked right out of a you know a cartoon movie after stealing a bunch of puppies to turn her turn them into a jacket. I was gonna you say know, she she wants to wear herself some Dalmatians, Paul. Right, like, and every costume she has in this film gets like more and more outlandishly sort of. I don't know, villainous, but also powerful. Like she just exudes this sense of power over everyone she sees and everyone that's around her. Um, and I, I really think that's impressive. Like she has a presence on screen that is, that really brings this movie to kind of the place it needs to be for the next scene to hold weight. Absolutely. And it's such a smart choice to bring her in and present her as the film's villain yes. from right off the bat. And plus, you know, you have a title that's called The Brides of Dracula. Well, who are we meant to think that she is straight mm-hmm. off the bat? You know, so clearly this is our villain and it's such a great way to uh, agreed. Uh, it's such a great way to uh, <laughs> sort of set up that twist that's coming, you know. Um, yeah, right. It, 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 yeah. It, it's something that every time I watch this movie, I'm like immediately drawn into her performance. And yes, Yvonne Monlar is, uh, is stunningly beautiful. 
Yeah, and I think that's important too. Um, you know, she has a, a charisma inherent to her, and it's not just her her beauty. Like she's just very like kind and unassuming. Like you, you just kind of trust her and believe that she would trust others. You know, she there's probably a certain sense of privilege that has come with her beauty that generally leads to people being kind to her and helping her. Um, so it, it's very believable, given the situation she's in, that she would be drawn in by this woman, that that she would trust her despite her obvious villainy, <laughs> you know, like despite how very clearly the people at the like the, the guy who owns the pub is like very cautious around her and kind of nervous around her. Anyone else would sort of read that as the context clue that it is, you know, but she's just accepting of the situation and, and believes that she's going to help her. Um, so I think all of that lends itself to the narrative, you know, and the, the believability of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting coming on the heels of our, uh, well, I say recent, it wasn't necessarily recent for us, but recent for <laughs> listeners, but uh, coming on the heels of the two faces of Dr. Jekyll, you know, yeah, with yeah. Kitty, we have a, uh, you know, a uh, uh, hammer heroine uh, who, as you noted in our commentary, had a great deal of agency. Whereas, you know, that's not really true uh, here. You know, with uh, with who we believe to be our uh, our hero or heroine in this story. You know, right. um, you know, Marion is you know somebody who has practically no agency in this world, and yet. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a step back for Hammer. I think it's part of the point of the movie, in fact. Yeah. You know, sort of investigating, like, the world in which she's moving around in. And uh, which we'll see more of, you know, as the, the, the story gets on, certainly. But, you know, she's she's almost treated like an object by everyone yeah. In, yeah. in the film. And uh, she's moved about like a pawn. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's not even fully resolved by the end of the film, but it also feels kind of sadly true in a way. I agree. Um, and I think some of that is the, the anytime you have somebody who's sort of kind like that and kind and beautiful, obviously she's sort of to represent innocence and how easily corruptible innocence is by its trustworthiness right and unfortunately one of the things that is a common thematic in hammer movies is like that's going to be taken advantage of by the good and the bad right like like those on the side of good are doing the same sort of manipulation only at least their aims are altruistic but they're still manipulating them they're, they're still kind of using them in some ways you know van helsing often has to sort of put people into unfortunate situations or risky situations so he can you know get to the vampire or jonathan arker and lucy and right yeah like he's he's not there's not he's not without blood on his hands and so um, there's I think we've that talked about that as well. Yeah, so, you know, it is funny, though, with, uh, you know, Van Helsing, then, like, how how far removed do you think Van Helsing is from being a villain? You know, it, I mean, do we believe in this man because he is serving the greater good, even if he is putting, 
he is putting innocence in harm's way, you know, like I, I love him because I love Cushing. He's obviously very charismatic and he is the, uh, he's the closest thing we have to a hero in these stories and he vanquishes the villain. So therefore he's a good guy, right? Except, you know, he's a little more, he's a little darker than that. He's, he's a little more complicated, I think, than some of the other screen portrayals of uh, probably up until Anthony Hopkins in the Coppola movie, I think, you know, he, he's not really a white hat as it were. And, uh, I don't know. It it is interesting that in this world, like you noted, like innocence is something to be, I don't know, either prized from the jaws of good or evil as it were. So I don't know. What does that say about innocence's standing in, in this world or the world period? I don't know. Um, And do you, (laughs) do you think though that, you know, obviously we're going to be coming up on uh, Baron Meinster's introduction at some point. What do you think he cherishes most in Marianne? Do you think it's her beauty or do you think it's her innocence? Um, I don't know if the two are like, if you can separate the two in the eyes of, of him or of someone like him, I, I think that's, that's the package. Right. And I think it's the corruption <sighs> of that, that is all that's left to take kind of like in a, in a world where you're maybe like you're immortal, you sort of, feed on the living i think he just he's gonna want to seek out a true prize something that's rare he could go feed on a corrupt person you know fairly easily but it's i think the i think the message is it's difficult to find somebody who's beautiful and innocent you know uncorrupted as it were um and that's a treasure for somebody like that um, so in a sense, do you think she is sport? And kind that's of. it? For him? Uh, I, I mean, maybe not it. I mean, in this movie, there's suggestion that he sort of like wants to have her. But I think I, I think part of that chase, though, like once. So let's say he did turn her and now she was like one of his brides. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I believe that then he would just move on to trying to find the next person. Absolutely. I don't think that she would then become, I mean, and if, if his whole aim was like to have her and have some sort of like weird relationship with her, then he'd be satisfied and he won't be, you know, maybe he thinks he will be, but I, I, I don't, I don't even think that. I think he knows what this is. Um, but I think he, he cherishes the fact that he was able to do that. It makes him feel powerful just like any other toxic person who wants to exert control over somebody that, seems to have their shit together <laughs> you know it's like oh now now they're they're sort of fucked and like me and i won haha i i have power i'm i'm better and and innocence is sort of worthless because look how easily corrupted it was um you know i so don't see like... oh go ahead so she's merely a conquest to him you think yeah i i yeah I agree. food conquest you know all of the above I think the and and I like the dichotomy between the baroness and then the uh like the maid you know sort of like how she tends to him and you sort of think the baroness is kind of in control and obviously she isn't um you know and, and also like in a situation like that you know someone that wealthy 
you would probably have somebody taking care of your child for you and having having a little bit more of a distance between yourself and your child. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a message there too, which I think is kind of cool. Um, a lot of purples in this movie, a lot of pastels. <laughs> I'm okay with it. But I always like that her, she wears this like pastel purple, this like light, nice, frothy thing versus the, the more like villainous hard purple that the Baroness was wearing in the previous scene. I do love this introduction. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that's not the first time we've seen him, but I, I just, I love that moment that, you know, and do you think he's playing her, you know, at oh, that yeah. moment? Like, you know, <laughs> absolutely. I think that th- this was all orchestrated. I think that's also why it's so easy for her to get to him. I mean, the maid clearly, I think, like unlocked the door and made it. This is all sort of a, a, a ploy, man. I'm glad we're not doing a drinking game. Cause I just remembered that one of your rules was balconies. Yep. <laughs> I don't remember much about our original recording, but I remember we were already well on our way to being sloshed at this point. Yeah. There was a lot of balconies. <laughs> I like him like, you know, emerging from the darkness. He he's an interesting guy, um, David Peel in this role because he's well he's short right he was like he's short he's blonde he's kind of soft looking he has everything yeah well that's the, the, opposite to Christopher Lee's Dracula and that's such a smart choice I think yeah and you know the 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 blonde is a wig right that's a hairpiece really no yes. I did not. Yeah, yeah, they they wanted him to look what they uh whatever it was like they wanted him to be with more distinguished. Um so they thought that he should have like blonde hair so they made like a like a nice hair piece for him. Um but yeah, that's not his real hair. <laughs> I think it's and, a great choice. He looks, you know, at first compare this like when he walks into the light to Christopher Lee's introduction in Horror of Dracula. You know, Lee is immediately this compelling figure. He bounces down the steps. He yeah. races up to Jonathan Harker with, you know, an open palm, you know, and uh, greets him, you know, Mr. Harker, you know. And yeah. even though he he's not doing Bela Lugosi, but he is, you know, he's playing an ingratiating host. And yet there's something that immediately sets you on edge about the man because he is so damned imposing. And yeah. what's so great about the introduction of Baron Meinster here is it's the exact opposite. He's in shadow. You know, he sort of meekly walks into the light. He's smaller. He he looks kind of foppish, you know, and he doesn't he isn't presented as a threat at all. And so you could almost buy into the possibility that this guy is under the thumb of his villainous mother. That, you know, he does need saving. And um I just I think that's such a clever choice they made in casting this guy and how they apparently dressed him for the role. Yeah, and it fits it fits not only like what you want to believe, well, what you want the audience to believe, as well as who he actually is, which is sort of like he he appears as a child, like a, a wealthy child who is sort of you know kept away from the world, doesn't really know how to take care of himself, and he's asking for help. But that also is kind of true, and along with that comes a uh, a sense of entitlement 
that people should do what he asked them to do and should take care of him and, and should sort of bow to his needs. Um, and that it's okay to sort of lie and manipulate to get what you want. It's a very childish way of approaching it. Whereas, you know, Dracula's Dracula does similar things, but it, it comes more from a place of command and control. Um, I, so I, I just think, yeah, I agree. I think the way they, they sort of reveal him, how he comes off. I love that it's different and it, it immediately challenges what you think it's going to be. You know, you kind of expect, oh, this guy's going to be creepy and scary. He's a vampire. He's chained up. And then it's nothing but the opposite of that. And and that kind of keeps you on edge for the remainder of the film because you don't really know what's going to happen. Look at that dress. Villain dress. Think, love it. Do you think Lee's Dracula would have any respect whatsoever for Baron Meinster? Oh, no, I don't at all. I think he would... I, I think his I, I think Lee's Dracula would be sort of I don't know, like just think that it was pitiable how he was carrying himself, like chaining himself <laughs> up and like that's all just beneath Dracula. Dracula would take what he wants. You know, or or would orchestrate it himself. The fact that he's using other people sort of to help him get what he wants. Dracula wouldn't do that. Um plus I just don't think Dracula would have much time for another faux alpha male um or somebody that was attempting to kind of take that position but yeah i don't know i I, it's 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 interesting it's also interesting that lee hasn't entered the film yet you know i i think that that's (laughs) like that you get about half an hour into the movie without him in a movie that's only, you know, an hour and 20 some odd minutes long. Oh, you mean uh, um, Cushing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. I thought you were joking Cushing. about Lee's not being no, in the movie. No, no, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not even like hammered. I don't know what's happening. Uh, yeah, I, I think <laughs> the Cushing hasn't entered the film yet. I, I think that's, that's kind of cool and kind of a testament to how well the movie just works in general. Like that it's not just a Peter Cushing vehicle. Um, so that way when Cushing does come in, you, you have a new reason to be invested in the story. So if you are lagging at all, you kind of get reinvested. But I think that the movie stands really well on its own legs. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, it, it really could just be called, uh, you know, horror of Meinster. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't need the connection, uh, to Dracula at all. Um, and God, I love how wonderfully gothic all of this is. You know, from the moment that she sees him, you know, about to throw himself off of the balcony and she races down the stairs and, you know, uh, uh, her clothing is like sort of fluttering. You know, it, it's just all very, like, all very wonderfully, like, darkly romantic in a weird way, you know. Uh, and we have her racing down the stairs again. I'm sure stairs was a rule in the previous drinking game version of the uh, the recording that we did in. Again, we probably would have been pretty Oh, yeah. Stairs stairs never... I think once Stairs was introduced, I don't think it ever left an episode. (laughs) (laughs) So many stairs in Hammer. Um, God, this is all so beautifully composed. And I feel like I, I, I almost hate pointing it out every episode because it's kind of redundant, and I've said it a million times before, but I can't help when watching these movies but point out how damned gorgeous they are 
Yeah, no, I mean, the way that, um, the way they were able to transform Bray Studios every single time, you know, is just, I, it just doesn't even make sense. <laughs> that the, the, you're, you're constantly looking at what is basically the same sets, um, but they, they feel brand new. It's a really interesting choice to put him in gray, too. You know, it's in yeah. contrast to uh, to Dracula's, you know, black attire. And I'm wondering if that was just another, I don't know, attempt to separate him from Lee's Dracula, or if there's any greater meaning to, uh, to Baron Meinster being somewhat, you know, lighter in presentation as were. I think, I think it's both. I mean, he's, it's very clear that in general, they wanted to just create a different persona, you know, than, than Dracula. Um, so I think that there's definitely an on purpose mentality towards making him look different, feel different across the board. But, um, yeah, no, and and I know uh, this was another, I mean, he did most of these movies, but Bernard Robinson probably did the production design for this, I think. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but he was kind of Hammer's guy when it came to production design. And he, he did most every big movie, and he's kind of the one that is sort of credited as, you know, he could repurpose any set, he could repurpose any prop. And make it look new for like no money at all. <laughs> um, so much so that he, gosh, and he would make like five, six movies a year at one point. It was crazy how many projects he would he would handle, and it was always with the same studios. He there's one of the discs, and it slips my mind because I've I've watched a bunch of them. Has sort of a uh, one of the Scream Factory Hammer discs has a the Men Who Made Hammer. Uh, short on it and there are different segments dedicated to different sort of personalities who worked for hammer and one of them is on bernard robinson and uh it's definitely worth checking out it kind of goes through all the different things he worked on but i think this movie is a great example of i mean this all of these sets look like things we've never seen in a hammer film before yeah i agree i this is the best looking movie they've made up until this point i mean it's astonishing. Of course, by this point, I mean they're starting to get larger budgets. They're, they've they've proven themselves. They've uh, they've they've won some success, certainly. So, oh, she is uh, she's dead. Yep, she is dead as can be. And I love um, her, uh, her evil laugh. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, can I ask, Paul, like, I know you were relatively new to Hammer. You didn't grow up with Hammer necessarily, right? Right, right. So when did you first catch this movie? Like, when – and um, would you even account it amongst your favorites? Like, how does how does Brides rank for you as far as Hammer goes? Well – Because I've already uh, said it's pretty much my favorite, but – Yeah, and, and again, like you said, I mean – and I feel really – like, I'm inundated with Hammer now, but – if you had caught me two years ago, three years ago, like I had never seen a hammer movie. <laughs> um, you know, I, so I am very new to hammer. I first caught uh, brides 
on this set, actually. Um, I I think probably Brian Sauer posted, you know, because he posts uh, Blu-ray deals and stuff on Amazon or whatever. God and bless he posted, him. Like, I yeah. feel like we should be, <laughs> there should be a Patreon for his Twitter feed. Because, there there God, should, and that, I would join that, it. because <laughs> That man is providing a service, and he has done it for years, even before... I think he had any podcasts or at least before I listened to him on any podcasts, certainly before Pierce cinema, like I just appreciated the hell out of, uh, you know, Rupert Pupkin, like, uh, posting like all these great deals every day. It's like, thank you, sir. Yeah. And his, uh, his blog is invaluable uh, for that too. But, um, uh, anyway, no, I totally agree. He's, he's one of my favorite like people online. Um, but he posted like, you know, oh, here's this link to this, uh, the set that we're watching, that I'm watching right now, uh, this Hammer box set. And it was 20 bucks or something. And I was like, oh, $20, eight movies. I don't know a lot about Hammer. This seems like a good primer. And so I bought it and I just watched the set. And so realistically, there's a good chance Brides was one of the first Hammer movies I ever watched. Because <laughs> I hadn't seen Horror of Dracula at that point. And I just decided, well, I'm just going to watch what's on this set. And Brides is the first movie on the first disc. Um, So it was probably one of the very first. But I think that was a really good thing because, you know, if if that's the first movie you see, you're kind of going, okay, I got to see more Hammer because it's (laughs) so great. Um, And it really, you know, I may not have gotten the full impact of like, Oh, we should point out that Cushing is now here. Um, but uh, I, I may not have gotten full effect of like Peter Cushing's Van Helsing or, or whatnot, you know, the, the the context of that from the other film. But I, I immediately recognized that it was doing a lot more than just being a, you know, a silly vampire movie. Um, and it drove me to want to see more. And and now that I've seen a healthy amount, there's still a lot I haven't seen, but I've seen a good amount of hammer movies. Um, it definitely is towards the top. It, it would definitely, I would say in my top three, I, d- I don't know that I can like define a top five right now. I, I have like five or six movies that kind of hover all around each other. You know, this, I totally agree with um, uh, Frankenstein created woman. I really oh, like, yeah. Uh, Night Creatures or Captain Clegg. Yes. Uh, I love that one. Uh, I know you don't like it, but I'm a big Curse of the Werewolf fan. Um, there, there's there's a bunch that kind of hover in that that realm for me. Um, well, can I say one thing about Curse of the Werewolf? <laughs> like, there's no such thing as bad hammer to me. Like, even... I know, I know. Even when we get to Satanic Rites of Dracula, I can still find plenty of things sure. to appreciate about that sure. movie. And yeah. Curse of the Werewolf is a damn sight better than Satanic Rites of Dracula. I would agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Brides, no, man. I think Brides was actually my first uh, my first Hammer ever. I, oh, okay. uh, I remember it aired... I don't know if... It was probably... When was Coppola's Dracula released? Was it 90 or 91? I think it was 91, right? Maybe 92? It was early 90s. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I, somewhere in there. <laughs> somewhere in there. Okay, so I was I was, I was was a youngster, and I was turned on to that movie. My, uh, my local comic shop had gotten in these glossy trading cards, and I had never seen – you know, there were photos on them. They were on full display, 
as soon as I would walk into this comic shop, you know, wanting to buy my superhero comics for the week. And, you know, I stepped over and would check out these images of like, uh, you know, the, the bat creature, the werewolf, you know, um, a Dracula that looked nothing like my passing sort of familiarity with Bela Lugosi, you know, um, Winona Ryder in that red dress. Good God. Um, so as a kid, I was like, what the hell is this? I need to see this movie. And they put out, I want to say it was Starlog, put out this Dracula magazine that wasn't simply about the Coppola movie, but it was kind of a broad overview of all vampire cinema. I still have that magazine. I read it until it ne- nearly fell apart when I was a kid. Uh, that was like one of my, it's funny whenever I talk about like my introductions to horror, I don't have one introduction. I have like 27 different entry points to the genre. Like it was, it was inevitable that I would be like a massive horror fan. But anyway, I read this magazine and the one image that really stuck out to me was Christopher Lee's Dracula. And the way that they talked about this guy, it's like, oh, this is clearly the greatest screen Dracula there is. And I remember the weekend that um, Bram Stoker's Dracula came out. It was around the time that the Sci-Fi Channel had first uh, come on the scene. And they played nothing but all sorts of vampire movies that I never had access to before. And all of a sudden, I was able to see these. And this is back in the day before, I mean, way, way back in the early 90s when, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to watch any sort of movie, you would either have to catch it on television or pray to God that your local mom and pop VHS store had it on videotape. And they probably didn't. I wasn't going to be able to watch like the 1970s Nosferatu on VHS from my local like video store in Franklin Furnace. But for this one weekend on the sci-fi channel, they were playing all of this amazing stuff. I actually taped as much as I could on VHS so I could watch it and rewatch it. But they did not have a single Christopher Lee Dracula playing that weekend. You know, they played everything, but so uh, that kind of bummed me out. But I remember very vividly being home from school sometime after that. I was uh, sick, homesick from school, like, and Brides of Dracula came on and I saw Peter Cushing so I knew that Christopher Lee had to pop up at some point. I knew that much about these movies. So I watched Brides of Dracula expecting Christopher Lee at any moment. And I got all the way to the end of the movie and he never showed up. I was expecting him like literally to pop up in the last scene. Like clearly he has to show up at some point. Fucker never did. But that was my first experience with Hammer. And what I realized at a certain point is I just stopped looking for Lee and – started enjoying the hell out of the movie before me. And I'd never seen a movie quite like it before where it wasn't scary at all, you know, tense at times. Sure. But just it's beauty and the performances, everything about it, like completely like captured me. And, uh, I knew from that point on, like I would, I would adore that type of storytelling, you know, and even the harder stuff that I saw as a kid, like, you know, eventually I did see Coppola's Dracula, you know, either that opening weekend or later, but, yeah. And and I adore it, but there's something about the Hammer films that I to this day I still can't quite pin down why I love them so very much, but I do. And and again, this is this is the most Hammer movie to me, not merely because it's the first one that I ever saw, but simply because everything that I love about Hammer, I think is is right on display here. Yeah. Except for Christopher Lee. The movie does miss him <laughs> a little bit. I think. That's a good story though. I like <clears throat> that's a that's such a cool way to discover it and i'm always really jealous now like since i didn't i didn't grow up with this stuff i'm like man i wish i had like some cool like 
when I was a kid, I stumbled upon this and, you know, but no, it's just, you know, I was an adult horror fan. I was like, I should watch Hammer movies. And so I bought them and watched them. <laughs> it's like a lot less interesting. <laughs> so every, you know, whenever I, I do, talk about I it, I'm like, eh, it's not that cool of a like... story. But... <laughs> well, I envy you for that. And I envy like the younger generation. I'm going to sound like an old man at this point. Um, you know, grumbling about kids on the lawn. But, um, you know, I do envy everyone now like coming up for being able to find everything at their fingertips. Oh, I want to see this movie. I'll just order the Blu-ray or the out-of-print DVD if I want to pay for it. Or maybe it's on YouTube. I can find it somewhere, though. Maybe right. it's streaming. Maybe I can rent it. Maybe I can own it on digital. Maybe I can... Nobody remembers that back in the day, you had to be a fucking archaeologist to see some <laughs> of this stuff, man. Like, um, Yeah, it's true. I, re- I remember when I was a teenager, like uh, when I started picking up Fangoria regularly... And they would talk about these guys like Fulci and Argento. And I would be like, who the hell is that? And why did they seem to be revered so much? I feel like I would have heard about these guys. Oh, no, I guess not. And I have to try and track this stuff down. And I found this uh, – I don't know if people will believe this, but there was a time when you could not easily find their stuff. If you could find it at all here in the States. Like um, to the point where there was this one website. I think it was a store that was based out of Cleveland, Ohio, and they had the coolest website called Video Junkie. And basically, like, <laughs> it was one of those websites where the opening page basically um, gave, like, a very loose interpretation of the burn convention, where they're like, hey, look, all this stuff isn't available already in the U.S., so, you know, we're really just providing a service and we're not bootlegging, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but they had like these little capsule reviews of all of these movies that they offered. And they were movies that you simply could not see here at the time. Again, this was like 95, 96, 97. And, um, so you could order like Argento movies for 15 or 20 bucks a pop on VHS. You know, that's how I saw, uh, my first Argento was the Stendhal syndrome. Basically I read about it in Fangoria and I was like, fuck it. I need to see this some way. And what they would do, they would basically buy Japanese laser discs and rip them and put them on the VHS and then sell them to people with the subtitles still burned into the image at the bottom. And I think they offered a lot of like hammer movies that weren't necessarily available that way too. But that's, that's where my education came from, which was basically like scraping and clawing to watch as much of this stuff as possible because it wasn't so easily available. And now, like I said, you know, today, you know, if you want to get into Hammer, you just buy the movies and watch them. You know, if if some kid out there is getting into horror movies and he hears the name Argento or Fulci, he's going to be able to watch that entire filmography if he wants to straight away. That's funny. Yeah, and it's it's true. You know, I I was I was definitely of the video store generation. You know, I would grow up and we'd hit the video store all the time, and and that's kind of how we saw things. When I got into horror, it was more at that point, you could kind of go to like Circuit City or Best Buy and they would have a big DVD selection and you would just, you know, you could pick up pretty much any horror movie for like 10 bucks. You know, it was like that's kind of how I did it. Like when I first started, I'd be like, okay, huh, let me I I, I would go to like Ain't It Cool News or something Yep, and (laughs) click on those like the hundred horror movies you have to watch you know or whatever it was and i would literally use those lists that people would post 
and I would just go, okay, I'm going to watch these movies. So I, and it sounds so bad. I'd be like, okay, oh, Dawn of the Dead. All right, let me check that out. You know, <laughs> once I, and I've, I've written about, I mean, the first couple were like, Night of the Living Dead really got me into horror. So I, I said, oh, well, what else did Romero do? And so I would get my list and I'd be like, okay, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. So I'd go to Best Buy and, and go to the horror section and, and grab the Dawn of the Dead DVD and grab the Day of the Dead DVD and buy those and, and then go watch them. And, and so I started amassing this DVD collection because it was how I was seeing these things. But I never got so deep that I got into Hammer. You know, it was mostly the big, big titles um, from American directors like Craven, Romero, Raimi. Um, those were the ones that those lists tend to bring you to. And the first Italian guy I got to was Argento, then Fulci, you know, then kind of Bava after that. Um, and and that sort of led me down a path. But Hammer really happened in recent years. And I'm not quite sure. I mean, you were a big person who pushed me towards Hammer because you kept telling me to watch the uh, Frankenstein movies. Yeah. Um, and and when I and and I watched some Hammer, but it was those Frankenstein movies. When I finally listened to you and watched them all, then I was like, "Oh shit, I got to watch all these. <laughs> I got to watch everything <laughs> they did because these were great." But um, but yeah. So no, it's it's been a journey. I I I really hope that more people start to discover Hammer, and I'm so happy. Like I know we're not watching the Scream disc, but I'm so happy Scream's putting this stuff out. I'm too, man. And you know, because if for no other reason, then that seems to be like. Whenever Scream Factory or Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome uh, or Severin or whatever one of these boutique labels, they, they <laughs> there's they so many out. now, <laughs> so many. Oh, holy shit, too many! I, but I, I love them am all. Out of money, <laughs> uh, and by God, why is it when one of them has a sale, the others are like, "Oh, we better have a sale too." Let's go ahead and just Probably bleed why. everybody dry. <laughs> oh God! But uh, you know, whenever they put out one of these movies, it seems like it shines a new light on it, and people, you know there's the opportunity for reappraisal or discovery, you know, and um, I, I'm certainly hoping that's the case with all of these hammer titles that we have a couple of, uh, well, we have more than a couple. I hope we have a uh, large swaths of fandom out there that are giving these movies a shot for the first time, simply by virtue of the fact that scream factory is putting them out. Um, you know, because the movies deserve it. We're, we're not talking about creep show two here, you know, like arrow put out and, um, uh, Creep Show Two is terrible. It does not deserve a reprise. Oh, but, uh, I don't know about that. I like Creep the Show raft. Too. The raft is okay, but no. Well, well okay. All right. I, Chief, are, are, are we halfway through the movie? Can we argue about a different movie now? Is that is that where we we're at in the podcast? Yes. All right. So here's the thing. Uh, disagree. I think the creep. Not only do I think Creep Show Two isn't bad, I think it's actually good. Oh, uh, I think oh, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. Oh. It's good. The only it only has one not great segment. There are only three. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the not great segment isn't outright bad. It's just not great, which is I think the Hitchhiker one. I think the the uh, old chief white the old chief Woodenhead is actually pretty good. I think people are hard on that one, but I think it's pretty good. Uh, it's it's got a good emotional hook. It's dark. It's it's upsetting. It's gory. It's creepy. It's a good. It's a solid segment. And the raft is one of the best segments that's ever been in any anthology. So I don't know what you're you're talking about over here that it's only okay. It's an amazing segment. What and it's influenced a shit ton of horror movies. A ton of movies have been influenced by the raft. A ton of modern day ones. 
is is super like a lot of its stylistic choices show up hey, in other Paul, movies. Paul, shit, easy, man. Like you're, I. It's weird, man. Like I, I can hear you saying this all, like with a smile and a laugh in your voice, but I also feel like you're ready to fight me at the same time. It's weird. It's I, a little disconcerting. I'm, I'm not. I don't want to fight you. I would never do that. I just think that you're being super hard on Creepshow too. It sucks. <laughs> it doesn't suck. It's... The raft is great. How can you say the raft is only okay? I, okay, I'm sorry I said it's only okay. The rest of the movie kind of darkens a bit. I like The Raft. It's fine. The Raft is great. Okay, it, it's, just... okay. it doesn't... Okay, the raft, <laughs> the raft only looks great because it's sat beside the other two segments, which are oh, quite bad. So you know what? The I, I'll give it this. Chief Woodenhead or whatever the fuck it's called. What is bad about Chief Woodenhead? Is, What's bad about uh, it? The fact that it, it's just dull. And there's no DC comics... There's no easy... Uh, Paul, I haven't seen it in a while. Well, I, then you can't really judge it. Yes, I can, because I bought the fucking Blu-ray, Paul. Well, for a movie you hate, I can't me. believe you spent like 30 bucks on it. Paul's arrow got me. That's yeah, really what I we're talking it. about here. I thought, like everybody else did, oh, because Arrow put it out in this big brand spanking new spiffy special edition, that it's worth a damn. And so I plunked down the money at Grindhouse Video. I bought this son of a bitch, and I watched it again. And what occurred to me was is that the raft looks pretty damn good sat beside those other two. Chief Woodenhead is not a great story. It's terribly paced. It's dodgily acted. I'm sorry, George Kennedy. And it doesn't have a twist befitting the riffs on EC Comics that all of the other stories in the previous movie and the raft in Creepshow 2 are meant to have. And then don't even fucking get me started on that Hitchhiker segment. You said it was the worst one. I will agree with you. It makes Chief Woodenhead look like uh, uh, any segment in the first movie. I do not like Creepshow 2 at all. Now, if you want to talk about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, th- which was essentially meant to be what? Creepshow 3. Now Creep- that... Creepshow 3, yeah. That, that, that's solid. I'll agree yeah. that, that Tales from the Dark Side is superior. Tales from the Dark Side is great. It, it gives Creepshow a run for its money, in my opinion. Agreed. But it... It's but Creepshow Two is not a bad movie by any means. I totally disagree about Woodenhead, but we we just missed a really great scene. I just want to comment on it really quick. I didn't miss when, it, uh, but while I was acting, <laughs> well, we were watching it. But man, that's such a great sequence when she opens the coffin and and raises her up, and the look on her face. Oh man, and and him with his scarf. Love him with his scarf. You ever? There's something about the bats in Hammer movies where they are just as fake as the bats in the universal movies, but I never laugh at them in the same way that I kind of nervously, guiltily giggle at, you know, I'm like universal horror movies. Like whenever I see the little bats on strings in yeah. Dracula, you can't help but giggle. It's just what we just saw on screen is just as fake, but there's something about the way it's shot and staged. It's just, it's, it's damn it. It's just better. Well, it's also surrounded by much better, well, much better performances and and uh, a lot of great production design that that makes it feel better. The, the there's a funny thing about the bat in this one though, because they they put a ton of money and effort into making a real realistic model bat, and then somebody lost it, like the week of shooting, um, and they had to replace it with really short notice, and that's why. It's 
it's like such a poorly made one because they had to make it the week of shooting after having invested in a nice one. So they had no money left or time to develop a good bat. So See, this movie you, actually you was supposed that? to have a good bat. I, I, you, you say they had to make one at the last second. Paul, you know they probably killed an actual bat. They slapped a couple of red googly eyes on it, and they, they just they, they, they thread some string through it, and they flop the thing around like crazy on set. True. Hey, see his bag there? Uh, they just showed it. It says JVH. Or the thing he's holding. Do you see that? What's have his first? Ever... What's his first name? <laughs> Have they ever called Van Helsing in this? Because the VH is Van Helsing. I get that. But what what is J? I I, I was looking at that. I was like, what what the hell does J stand for? What's his name? Is Van such a bad name that they have to keep renaming him? I I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure they've never said his first name. Am I wrong? Did they say it in the first movie? They might have. I don't know. His but I feel like Helsing. it's always been Doctor or Professor or whatever Van Helsing. What was it in the Hugh Jackman movie? Was it Gabriel Van Helsing? I don't know. The Hugh Jackman movie. I haven't seen that movie since it came out, to be honest. So is it good? It can't it's be better. good. That's better than Creepshow 2. That is incorrect, sir. Everyone is I will so say, hard on Creepshow 2. That okay, movie's great. I will, say, I will say this. Um, then the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing, it is plagued by terrible CG, but mm-hmm. otherwise there is a very sort of, it's this mix of Saturday morning cartoon with edgy anime. Like that's the, that's, you put those two together, you mix them up a little bit. That is the filter that they shoot classic universal horror through. It's yeah. Goofy as shit, but there's something kind of endearing about it because you can tell that the people making it genuinely love the influences that that the new film comes from. Like, it's just, okay, just fucking Cushing here as Van Helsing is such a badass. He was in the previous movie, too. But the fact that he just slid the cross down the table to stop Meinster in his tracks and did it like a boss. Like, come on. Well, and that's the thing when we talk about, we were talking about Peel's performance and and how he sort of differs from Lee, like we would not have run away like that. Like he just flees. You know what I mean? Like like Peel just that, kind of gets the hell out of there. But given given Van Helsing, like that does make Meinster a bit smarter than Dracula, at least. No, it does. But I I like that. <laughs> difference because it makes him smarter but it also makes him less like i don't know less powerful feeling like he's he's more basing his he's yeah he's more basing it like on his intelligence than his raw power he's kind of like scar from the lion king (laughs) (laughs) love it that's fantastic i I was try. i really tried to do that without laughing and i couldn't i i really wanted to like go into that comparison without breaking into laughter, but um, this is a cool, powerful, emotional scene. Yeah, it's the moment where we realize, I think, for the first time that this woman wasn't the villain, she was a victim. I mean, I know we've seen her, you know, there's the moment where Monster calls to her, there's the moment that obviously she's in the chair, but this is the moment when we realize that this is a woman who has been kind of terrorized, you know? It's, it's such a kind of 
we go from fearing and kind of hating her to feeling, you know, a great deal of pity for her. Yeah. And I, oh, I love her. I love the, the woman who's sort of like, Oh, we missed the scene where the, the guy who runs the place where um, Marianne is like, where he's like a dick to her. And then all of a sudden, Van Helsing comes in. He's like, Oh, you're a doctor. Oh, you're a colleague. Oh, whatever you need. Oh, we have all the rules, you know, (laughs) the, uh, implications of, you know, men and what they can do. And, and the fact that, you know, just because he's a baron, this is exciting, you know, Oh, well, he's a baron. You should just listen to him. And and again, it, it speaks to that manipulation of innocence and how everyone's just so happy to give it away, you know, or or push it towards something that they don't necessarily understand just because they trust in the system that they've all kind of found themselves within. I love that reading. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, nobody is actually smitten with the man himself, are they? Like, even Marianne, like, I... Do you get the feeling that she really is kind of endeared to him because of who he is and his personality? Or do you think it's simply by virtue of the fact that, like, I, she saved him? You know, like, there is there's almost this feeling that, um, he, you know, he is indebted to her in a way. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I buy the romance for being simply that. You know what I mean? No, yeah. Well, and you gotta give her a little bit of credit. I I do think that I think it's kind of, man, I'm going to keep referencing like weird movies. I think it's a, uh, um, uh, Oh God. It's kind of like in, (laughs) I can't even do it. It's like in back to the future (laughs) when George McFly gets hit by, by uh, the car and, and she sort of like Leia Thompson's character sort of like falls for him because she feels bad for him. Not necessarily because there's an actual attraction there, right? Like it, it, the she has a bit of that. I think she has like a bit of, oh well, he needed my help and I helped him. But also, he's in this position of authority that whoever he chooses would be lucky to be his bride, and that's the world I've been raised in. So that's how I should feel. Um, you know, and she's kind of torn regarding those emotions because ultimately. I don't believe there's an actual like visceral attraction there. You know, that's pretty clear. They don't have chemistry. No, not at all. And yet she is all too willing to sort of fall into, well, her place and position. I, it's just, it's the person. Well, and, and that's, that's, <laughs> really really well like with with uh her friend who's kind of like oh i wish i wish a baron would would find me and like 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 the prince charming mythology you know i oh. loved her as uh i loved her as the russian in dodgeball <laughs> no, i'm a, sorry I'm that's a good pull <laughs> <laughs> Do- dodgeball is a great movie by the way <laughs> It is. See, yeah. another dumb comedy that I love. I like to think of Dodgeball as a sequel to Heavyweights, like a low-key Heavyweight sequel, because of Ben Stiller's character is basically the same villain as was in Heavyweights. Have you ever seen Heavyweights? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, 
heavy. Wow. We're really going to talk about heavyweights on a break. Okay. Yeah, we are. Um, heavyweights is a Disney live action camp movie, like a summer camp movie for like kids going to basically what is fat camp. Um, and basically it's hilarious. It's amazing. And Ben Stiller buys the camp and tries to turn it into something so he can make like a weight loss video. So he's like this, he's basically the character from dodgeball, but he runs a summer camp for children and it's hilarious (laughs) and it's weirdly dark. Like, like it's one of those movies where like, this is a Disney kids movie at times. Like it is super dark with like how far they go with it. Um, and at it's any point, very good. Very at any good. point, does he uh, does he fuck a slice of pizza? He does not fuck a slice of pizza, but there are some moments in it, man, like that you will raise your eyebrows and go, "I can't believe Disney greenlit this." Like, there, there's no way. Like, it, it's kind of you kind of get the impression it was made. Yeah, you know, it was like an like an early '90s Disney movie, so it was kind of before they were what they are now. It was kind of when they were just coming back from near bankruptcy and they weren't paying a ton of attention to what was happening in their live action slate. Um, but they, it's, it's, wasn't that around the time that they also did that movie blank check? Uh, yes. It's Where in that the, milieu. The kid yeah. and the grown ass woman, like you basically have a relationship. <laughs> yeah. It's fucked up. Yeah, and she goes like, call me when you're 18. You're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, but, like uh, in the early 90s, I can't imagine that, sadly that people would It's that level of kind Ooh. of like crossing the line without going all the way. But my God, man, Ben Stiller in that movie, it's like, honest to God, if I was ranking Ben Stiller roles, it would be towards the top for me. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. I would rank it like one of my absolute favorite Ben Stiller performances as heavyweights. It's so funny. Um. So, I mean, some of that might be nostalgia because I did grow up watching it. But I am telling you, if you like Dodgeball, you will think this is funny. There's no way you won't appreciate it. Even if you don't think the rest of the movie is good, you'll love Ben Stiller in this movie. Anyway, Brides of Dracula. Back to our Brides of Dracula commentary. I apologize for talking about 90s Disney. Hey, Paul, I got to say, we are, uh, we're well into the movie, and I haven't gotten super personal yet. So that is, uh, I take that as a good sign. I don't have I think that much. I think it's a so. sign of the fact that we're not getting hammered anymore. Like we're, we're just we're just kind of drinking. I mean, I'm definitely what? like feeling my thing? drinks though. Huh? Is that a sad thing? Do you miss not getting uh or do you miss I getting I mean, I'm I'm good. I, I I'm still having fun. No, <laughs> right, I'm let's not... ask our we should ask our listeners. Uh listeners they are very quiet online, but uh let us know if you like this or don't like this. But um I'm just happy to be talking hammer, man. I'm just yeah, happy to be here. back talking. Oh God! I love the Kensington Gore. I love the bright red paint. I just yeah, paint blood they, is really an art. Like it just—they know it doesn't look even, or maybe they didn't. But I mean, it doesn't look real at all. But I love that. It just adds to that sort of comic book sensibility that these movies kind of have. Yeah, and I like him sort of putting her down and doing, you know, a mercy killing. For her, I think that's kind of interesting. How do you feel? Okay, so we were talking about this. We touched on this before, and I'm sure we've talked about it a little bit at length. 
before in other episodes, but well, one other episode at this point. But um, Cushing as Van Helsing, like amazing performance. He's utterly iconic in the role. He's my favorite Van Helsing. But is he a good guy? Is he a hero? Uh, I mean, I think he, I think he's, I mean, good is a, a tough word, right? <laughs> it, I think we make it tough when sometimes it doesn't need to be. <laughs> and so we're I guess not then going to I talk say about Dragon I think he's a good, Yes, I think he's a good guy. I mean, I think the simple answer is yes. He's doing good things. Okay. His aims are true. Um, I think the, I, I guess... I think what would make him not a good guy doing what he's doing is if he relished in the, if he was only there to kill vampires and that's what he was sort of getting out of this exchange, then maybe I would rescind his good guy status, but I don't think that's why he does it. I think he really does try to make the world a better, safer place. And his aim is to keep innocence innocent. I don't think he wants to stop the corruption of innocence in the world. He's willing to sacrifice things to make that happen. Um, well, that's the thing. But, I, you know, <sighs> here we go. Some, a little bit of, a little bit of comedic relief here. And this might be the first time a character like this has popped up in a hammer movie where this didn't grate where this didn't feel like it was sort of shoved in. You know what I mean? Like, it, it feels like a natural extension of the movie that we've been watching, and yet it is a nice moment of levity. You know, generally, up until this point, when Hammer has done this, you know, it, it feels almost like a studio note. You know, even though that wasn't necessarily the case here. Like, hey, can we have a character written in that just gives us some yucks at about the halfway point? Yeah, usually these guys walk into a party get drunk and stumble around and their life, their wife, you know, takes them home. And that's kind of the extent of that character. They're sort of there for like one quick joke. This guy's the first time they really injected one of those into the narrative to where he becomes important to a plot point. Um, and they use him, I think to a cool extent to kind of express like, I don't know. Again, we talk a lot about the uh, the corruption that's pervasive in their world. Like, he represents corruption in a profession that's supposed to be completely trusted, right? Like, because he's a doctor. And if this guy's corrupted, then, you know, we don't really have a lot of hope. Because <laughs> people trust him and call him when they need help. Um, and he's still just kind of looking out for number one, right? Um, and, and even Cushing kind of rides the coattails of that to get the information he needs so he can kind of keep doing his own work and, and allows that guy to kind of proliferate his own aims. And, you know, cause there's a line later about like, well, I, as long as I can accept the fee, you know, or something along those lines, like, yeah, I might the, put your specialist fee on my own account. Or something like that. Right. Yeah, I think he... Yeah, exactly. And and I love that Van Helsing is just kind of like, why not? <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever. I just need to fucking kill vampires. Like, you do you, do you buddy. Um, but I think it's interesting that Cushing, like, 
sees that as small potatoes. Like he could easily discredit that guy and make sure that he doesn't get to take advantage of people like he's probably doing. Um, but he doesn't because he sees a better path to a, 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 a greater good. And I think that's kind of representative of a lot of what he does. There's that, you know, again, that notion of the greater good, like he is somebody who is willing to kind of, you know, in a, in a very small way, like, I don't think the doctor is doing any great evil necessarily, but yeah. Van Helsing is willing to deal with corruption in smaller forms. He is willing to sacrifice others for the greater good. And again, that's why I kind of wrestle with how good of a man he may be. You know, he is waging kind of his own personal war. And like any war, there are, you know, there are casualties that, you know, need not have ever been maybe. Um, But he does so in service of, say, saving even more lives. I get that. But... I don't know, it reminds me of this movie. I, I try and turn as many people onto it as possible. It's not easy to find, but have you ever heard of the movie The Cold Light of Day? I've heard of it. It stars Richard E. Grant, who would have been amazing in Hammer films had he been born like 30 years earlier. <laughs> uh, he's, there, he's, there's something very cushing about Richard E. Grant at times, especially in the 90s. But the cold light of day is this great movie about an inspector uh in some i think unnamed european uh town you know the small village uh where a serial killer had murdered this young child and uh this inspector is kind of cornered by the mother of the murdered child and she makes him uh promise that he will find the murderer no matter what and there's something about her that gets to him. There's something about the situation that gets to him. And so he kind of takes it upon himself to do just that. And there are, you know, a couple of, uh, I don't want to ruin the movie because I do hope you watch it at some point. Basically his career as a policeman is kind of broken and he kind of gives up the badge, but he still makes it a point to try and find the killer. And at a certain point, he creates a trap of sorts and in order to ensnare the killer, or at least attract him, he winds up befriending a um, a young homeless mother and her daughter, and invites them to stay with him. And he dangles the little girl out as bait for the killer. And what that ultimately means to the child's fate, I'll leave for you to discover if you watch the movie. But there's that sense that you know, obviously, it's personal for him. It's kind of a vendetta. It's something that's haunted him. Like he needs to resolve that, and he needs to find the killer. You know, not just for the mother, not just for justice, but for himself. But in order to do that, he is more than happy to sort of roll the dice with other people's lives. And there's something about that that you know, he's he does heroic things, but he's not a hero. And in a weird way, that kind of reminds me of Van Helsing in that way. Like he's, he's our hero, but that doesn't necessarily make him heroic. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and that, that sounds like a really cool movie. I'll have to add it to my, uh, my list. (laughs) So what's weird is it's like this little low budget UK produced film. Um, it was only ever released on VHS. It was directed by this guy named Rudolf Vandenberg, who did another movie in the early 90s called um, The Johnsons, which did make it to DVD, and it's fucking fantastic if you ever get to see it. It's weird as hell. But The Cold Light of Day is probably most noteworthy. You can watch it on YouTube, by the way. But it's probably most noteworthy because six or seven years after it was released, 
It was remade as this big-budget Warner Brothers film directed by Sean Penn and starring Jack Nicholson. It was a movie called The Pledge. And it is fucking terrible. Um, It it is the star-studded, bloated, would-be Oscar bait of a movie um, that is just... It takes everything that makes the original movie, which is this great, sharp little switchblade of a flick, and it just makes it emotionally gaudy, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I mean, that's seems to me that's kind of a common occurrence when they try to make an Oscar movie. <laughs> it's kind of it's the same thing, you know, it worked in this case, but it's the same thing with uh, Infernal Affairs and The Departed. Like Infernal Affairs is this great, you know, n- not an ounce of fat on it like 90 minute thriller that's fantastic and then martin scorsese remade it as the departed and it's like this three hour like epic and i love that movie but was it necessary you know to have been that bloated no you know um well scorsese loves to relish in very quiet long character moments (laughs) and and that you know that tends to lead to insane run times but at the same time I wouldn't change a second of the Irishman. You know, I think that a lot of times when he lets, I think by letting his films breathe, um, there's like a emotionality and that, that kind of comes through that wouldn't be possible in that genre. Otherwise, I don't know, but no, I agree. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I mean, like I, when you watch like a 90 minute thriller, there's, and it's done well, you're like, man, this is this is how all movies should be. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know, get in, get out, get the job done, do it. And there's something, too. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it'll be very interesting to compare the two movies, like to watch them back-to-back after all of these years, like 20 years later now. But uh, I would be curious for you to check them out and see what you think. But there's almost something like, and I like some of Sean Penn's movies, like uh, The Crossing Guard from the mid-'90s with Jack Nicholson. It's fucking great. Um and, you know, he did the Indian Runner before that. But there's something about the pledge that's almost like ah, masturbatory, like just the how he holds on certain moments. And he it's just it's uh, it, everyone's heads are so far up their own asses in that movie as far as their performances and like the approach to the story. Like it, it's it's such a bummer because there's so much fucking talent in that movie and it's based on really strong source material and yet the result is something that's frankly kind of an embarrassment she's such a great vampire she is and i was i was i was making fun of her earlier for the russian in uh dodgeball gag or whatever she is actually really striking looking uh especially when she's a vampire and i love that moment when she sits up in the coffin yeah. like that is one of the images that really sticks with me from this film well and she just her eyes like there's there's an intensity to her eyes there and the fangs it's just she's terrifying i i really think she's one of the scariest vampires in hammer like she's well history. she's she's so pretty but there's something about her too that's almost like she's almost like this tiny perfect porcelain doll of a figure that's been corrupted, you know, that is malevolent. Right. And yeah. There, yeah. There's yeah. something about that that's just, ugh. Well, again, it's, it's that, cor- it's innocence corrupted. And 
and how terrifying just that idea is because she's not doing anything. She's just looking at her this, you know, obviously she's pale, she has fangs and she's looking intensely, but it's showing the transformation that, that occurs when something innocent is changed and that change can't be undone, you know? Um, and, and, and I think that like Marianne being faced with that head on, that's, that's such a great moment of terror for her and also a sign of things to come. You know, she's kind of looking at her own future there. Um, and it, it's kind of her moment of choice where it's like, you know, this is your warning. Make the right decision. <laughs> Do you think there's kind of, as far as she is concerned, and I don't know that the movie allows her to really wrestle with this in the way that I kind of wish that it would, but do you think she sees it as an inevitability? Do I think Marianne sees it that way? Yes. Um, I don't know that she does. I think she's, I think she's incredibly confused. I think she's frightened. I don't, I don't think she, I think she sees her future as very uncertain. But I don't know that she feels like there's no hope. And that's one thing that Hammer vampire movies tend to have in spades is like characters that believe in a hopeful outcome, which is interesting. They're not hopeless movies, typically. No. Uh, Even in situations where normally, and by all accounts, they should feel hopeless. They don't. Um, And and some of that runs... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, do you think that runs counter to the horror of it all, though? You know, that's something you and I have talked about. As much as we love these movies, they're rarely scary. They're rarely horrific. And I wonder if that approach maybe explains that away to some extent. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, the movies, there's a almost like a divine sensibility to them that the good will will out you know no matter what like like that there is a a higher sense of right and wrong and right will win if right fights um regardless of what is sacrificed in that battle and i think i do think that that makes it less scary because you you don't very rarely is there a character that you like or that you that's a protagonist that you're not pretty certain is, is going to succeed <laughs> in whatever it is that they're fighting against. And we're coming up against the uh, sort of the big conclusion here. We're coming uh, up on one of the greatest scenes any vampire movie ever had. Well, and I think it's worth noting that it was almost completely different. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, like, from the script phase. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing, because to me, it sort of dictated, like, where the Van Helsing character went from here. And also, like, ended up as one of the great, like, well, one of the sequences that kind of went on the cutting room floor that hammer then repurposed, which became really common practice in the following years. Um, Because the original script was basically Peter Cushing calling upon the forces of darkness to, um, you know, bring, 
like uh, basically an army of bats was going to come and like devour the Baron. Um, and Van Helsing just flat out wouldn't do it. He just refused to do it because he said his character would never use the black magic. He just wouldn't do it. That's the thing. He's always been treated, even, you know, going back to horror of Dracula and certainly in this movie, like he is a man of God, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I think it's really cool that they honored his decision because like they had already started prepping that scene. That was what was intended. And for them to rewrite it and come up with something arguably better <laughs> um, is inarguably pretty, better. I pretty think. cool. <laughs> yeah. Although I do, I mean, they ended up, we should probably note that they did use that scene uh, at the end of the kiss of the vampire with a much more interesting, well, reason to do it based on that movie. Like in this movie, I don't think it would have worked because yeah, why would he do it? Whereas in the kiss of the vampire, the guy that sort of takes up the Van Helsing role, like would a hundred percent do it. Cause he's like a drunk, he's basically like a drunk, angry Van Helsing. <laughs> who's <laughs> a lot more questionable in his actions, but I kind of dig it in that movie. Whereas here I would be like, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. That's a really creepy visage. Well, I love it too. This is the, uh, you know, for all of us talking about, uh, you know, Hammer being scary or not, and the idea that there is hope in these movies. Like this is the uh, this is the all hope is lost moment in this story. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. Our hero just got bitten by a vampire. This is there is no coming back from this, or at least so far yeah. as we know. And we're then, at the uh, and we're at the end of the movie. I mean, like, there's five minutes left. Like, what's he going to do? We're screwed. You know, is is it's a great moment to have him bitten his reaction like this is Cushing at his best I mean he really carries this whole sequence you believe everything his fear him looking around like what am I gonna do (laughs) his panic oh but this is the one thing that really stood out to me as a kid where I was like I didn't know you could reverse being a vampire yeah you know that's that's incredible and how he does it just sort of a uh because what he does has to hurt like fucking hell. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I love that he just, you know, there's no hesitation whatsoever. He's just kind of like, well, this is something I got to do. Well, yeah, and I love that he does it not knowing it's going to work. Like, I might become a vampire, but I have to do something. And one wonders if it's almost like another one of those bats. It's almost like that you wonder, like, did, is it his sheer will, not necessarily even his action, that stops it? Like, does he will it out with his faith? And... I hope so. I, I would like to think that there is a, I don't know, there's a moment in the, I don't know if you've read it, the Crow graphic novel, the James Abar graphic novel that became the movie with Brandon Lee. There's no, I this, read it. There's this repeated line in it. Uh, it's not death if you refuse it. And part of me, like, yeah, I mean, what you said, it kind of makes sense. Like, part of me thinks that Van Helsing is just too fucking stubborn to become a vampire. Yeah, and and his his action helps convince his mind that he was able to ward it off. But really, it was just his will. I love that idea. 
Well, we know that Terrence Fisher was an incredibly religious man, you know, so it's it's not outside of the realm of reason that that wouldn't be the case. Do you think it's but, curious then that he maybe should have had or could have had some hand in the original ending then that did use black magic? It It is. that Well, yeah, it's interesting Fisher would have signed off on that because you would think he would think the same along the same lines that, you know, Cushing would. That, oh, Van Helsing wouldn't do that. His, how he plays that moment being burned. That isn't like, I, you know, I've seen Rambo 3. I've seen John Rambo, like, pour out gunpowder from a bullet and stick it in both sides of an open wound and light it up. And he yells, but he does it, like, lit perfectly. And it's this stoic hero kind of moment. We've seen some variation on that kind of scene over and over again, where the actor in question yeah, it has to look as though he's in pain, but he won't allow himself to look anything but like, you know, for the most part, a tough guy. I love that Cushing was honest enough as a performer to play that moment as fucking gut-wrenching as it would be in real life. You know, yeah. like he squirms, he twists, oh, yeah. he howls, yeah. he throws himself to the ground because holy shit, how bad would that hurt? Yeah, and... and- he it's not it's sort of emasculating in some ways and he wasn't afraid to put himself in that position there's no vanity there at all in his performance it's character first Mm -hmm. and i like that the the vampires were watching him afraid like it it made them afraid to see him defeat that curse i love this look well, and he's pathetic. Like, this is revealing, like, how pathetic he really is. But even a pathetic vampire baron is still a vampire baron. <laughs> he's still a, a real threat. By the way, how great, you know, I forget how good real fire looks on screen oh, because yeah, yeah. we don't see it anymore these days. But how fucking great did that look? when he lit the entire barn on fire in the space of just a couple of seconds. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. Okay, this may be the greatest moment that any vampire movie ever had, ever. Yep, it's, it's wonderful. It doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even looking at that, it's oh, like, okay, where where's the windmill is. itself in that shadow? I know. But I it know. doesn't matter. Doesn't it doesn't matter. But it's it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Well, again, it it, it wouldn't mean anything without Cushing's faith. And Cushing just stopped the vampire curse, so his faith is at an all-time high. (laughs) Look at that fucking leap that he just did, too. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, like, would he have been able to make that shadow as powerful as it was had he not just defeated the curse? Like, I kind of think of that as being intrinsic to him imbuing that shadow with as much power as he does. I love that idea. Well, it goes back to, um, you know, obviously a movie that was uh, very sort of lovingly, you know, poking fun at the kind of movie that we just watched, but Fright Night. Yeah, you know that yeah. that moment at the very end of it when Charlie is wielding the uh, the cross and uh, Jerry Dandridge, or no, not Jerry Dandridge, um, 
Well, yeah, Jerry Dandridge at one point, but also the uh, the Rinfield analog. What is his name? Um, oh God, I'm such a terrible fan. Um, but when they basically crow I'm bad with Charlie, with names. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I watched that. I've watched that movie a hundred times, but I know he's <laughs> the, basically his like Gollum guy kind yes, of thing. Yes, because that guy is not really a hundred percent human. It, it, they kind of suggest in the end, but um. But he, you know that their constant insistence that you have to have faith. You know yeah. that it's not merely the bauble, it's not merely the totem that holds the power. Like it has to be in the person that's wielding it. Yep. And that has to, you know, to some extent, that has to come from uh, from Van Helsing and his portrayal in these movies. All right. A hundred, well, yeah. I mean, Fright Night is, if if nothing else, a, a complete homage to Peter Cushing in those Dracula movies. Like it's much more about Peter. It's much more about Peter Cushing's Van Helsing than it is about Christopher Lee's Dracula. Because Jerry Dandridge isn't really like Christopher Lee. If anything, Jerry Dandridge is more like David Beale, where he's like this handsome, charismatic guy that kind of wants to live his life and not be bothered. Like there's even a moment in Fright Night where, Honestly, I think he would have when he first goes in Charlie's room and he's like, look, we have a problem here. He's like, I don't want to kill you because that would cause me issues. You don't want to die. If you just like forget that you saw me like we're good. I will leave you alone. I I believe he would have. I don't I do think I... I do not think he would have killed Brewster had. Brewster just fucking left him alone. And that's well, the kind of guy Dandridge sense. was. Dandridge didn't want to make problems. If he killed Charlie, then people would look for Charlie. You know, that would be a thing he'd have to to take care of on more than on a higher level than just killing him. Um, There's that he, sense that Dandridge is a man of his word. In yeah, a weird way. yes. Yeah, Dandridge isn't <laughs> it's and that's one another reason why I love that movie so much is the again, no one no one is one dimensional in that film. Uh, you know, every, even like the idiotic comic relief character in evil Ed is like, this has so much depth by the time he dies, you know, there, there's so much there that you couldn't have possibly anticipated when he's going like, you're so cool, Brewster, you know, it's, <laughs> but then he's like this, this like horribly painfully dying sad child reaching out to Peter Vincent, like for some sort of human connection. It's like the last thing you could have possibly anticipated. Um, but, but that's the thing these movies sort of present is human. There, there is much about the monsters. They are about human, the humanity that sort of lies in its wake. Um, and that's something I think I, I love about a lot of hammer movies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, plus any time you have Peter Cushing playing anyone in one of these movies, like I'm I'm going to love it just that much more than a movie that doesn't have Cushing in it. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I don't know why Cushing wasn't in every one. Uh yeah, it's a little weird. I I would I I would like to know what happened there because I mean, he was probably just filming something else. It's probably the easy answer is they probably just Probably. I mean, he he surely did. Like, yeah, he worked with them all the way up until, I mean, certainly the end of Hammer. So he was there with the Seven Golden Vampires, and that was definitely latter latter era Hammer. But um, yeah. 
I just, I love him so much. I love this movie so much. I feel like we haven't talked about the movie itself that much, but, you know, in a weird way, and maybe this will prove to be a problem going forward, you know, with these commentaries. I find that with a lot of Hammer movies, there is certainly, you know, uh, depth to a lot of them, but in something like The Brides of Dracula, I don't think it has as much depth as, say, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, or even though I don't care for the movie that much, I do think there's a great deal of depth to The Curse of the Werewolf. But, you know, in the case of The Brides of Dracula, what it really nails is just the style and the aesthetic, like the just how beautifully made it is and the atmosphere that kind of envelops you, you know. And so but so what I found, you know, rewatching these movies and you and I talking about them or whatever, is that I I, there is a repetition to my appreciation for these movies, you know. Um, So. I'm 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 curious to see how that uh now I will say with the Frankenstein cycle like I find each one of those to be absolutely fascinating and you know I I can't wait until we get to the very next one but I don't know in in the case of Rise of Dracula I I find myself almost wanting to uh talk more about it and yet kind of you know coming up with very little aside from say what you and I already discussed well, I mean, that's that's kind of what happens sometimes when you have a great movie. Um, <laughs> you know, on some of my favorite movies, when I when I'm asked to talk about, it, I'm like, yeah, it's just it's just great. <laughs> I just love it. Like some of it is is hard to put into words um, because it's the feeling you get while you're watching it. I, I do agree that this is a pretty simple, straightforward movie. There's not there's not a lot going on outside of just the plot um i think what's important about this film it really set the stage that vampire movies were going to be hammer's bread and butter um it's what they it it, vampire movies almost more than any other horror subgenre just lend themselves to what hammer does well um the style the sensibility the the acting, the, the, the sort of subtleties, um, the inherent repressed sexuality, all of it lends itself to vampirism. Um, and pretty much every vampire movie they make from horror of Dracula to gosh, like (laughs) the seventies is successful. Like every one they make is successful. Um, even when a lot of other movies aren't. You know, Jekyll, like the two faces, of Dr. Jekyll, that was a disappointment. Curse of the Werewolf, that was a disappointment. Fan of the Opera, that was a disappointment. All of them are great movies. Um, but lo and behold, you know, this comes out. Kiss of the Vampire comes out. They're just they they're very successful films. It's it, audiences respond to them. Um, and they and that gothic kind of thing that they bring to the vampire films, I think really soars here and is the like more apparent than almost any other vampire film they ever made. This, this really sets the stage for the kinds of films they're going to be making for the whole decade that precedes it. And you know, what's crazy is, is up until this point, you know, how many episodes we <laughs> Not including the one that we lost. We were up to episode seven, <laughs> I think, right? So that just right. as far as their key <laughs> horror films go, you know, we have by this point, we have uh, Curse of Frankenstein. We have the horror of Dracula. 
Of course, they were doing the Quatermass movies at this time, too. We have The Revenge of Frankenstein. We have The Hound of the Baskervilles, the Sherlock Holmes movie, which we didn't cover, and I think we were right not to as far as you know this, uh, this run goes. But we had The Mummy. We had The Man Who Could Cheat Death. Uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, uh, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll. And then we had The Brides of Dracula. We're three years into their run. Just that. Three years. And yeah. already that was their output. Like, that is yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. If a studio did something like that today, we'd be like, we'd be talking about them as if they were the Pixar of horror. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'd be like, oh, I can't, you know, they can do no wrong. Does that make, <laughs> does that make Pixar like the hammer of animation? Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Holy shit, Paul. You know, they've tried to bring Hammer back, and they got pretty damn close with uh, the success of The Woman in Black. But unfortunately, you know, they, they, they got a foothold, but they couldn't keep it with a lot of their later productions. I know they're still, they're still swinging. They're still out there. They're still making stuff. They just put out The Lodge earlier this year, which I thought was, one, very good, and two, not even remotely what I consider to be, quote-unquote, Hammer horror, but... You know, they're still out there, but can you imagine Pixar and Hammer doing gorgeous animated, like, for kids, but also creepy enough for monster kids of old horror movies? Uh, that sounds like the greatest thing ever. I've, <laughs> I've wanted Pixar to make a. Well, they. I mean, one could argue that Coco enters into the horror realm it's not a horror movie but i'm i I want pixar to do their take on horror i think that would be really cool um you know like a obviously like a g or pg version of it but i and i like that that coco i mean deals with the afterlife there's some creepy imagery and iconography um you know obviously it's it's not by any means horror, but it deals with a lot of things that, that come from the horror genre. Um, and I love Coco for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. I would like to see them do more of that, but yeah, the idea of them doing like a Gothic thing, partnering with hammer and having like a Peter Cushing esque character in it would be like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So listeners out there, if you thought we were trying to keep to some sort of schedule, we were, but, uh, <laughs> things got a little dodgy. Uh, we, we, we mixed up a couple of movies. We skipped ahead and then had to come back, but I think we're going to iron it out here. It looks like after the curse of the werewolf, which would be the next movie after, uh, <laughs> the brides of Dracula, it looks like we're coming up on captain Clegg, AKA night creatures after that is going to be the Phantom of the Opera, and then after that will be the Kiss of the Vampire. So, uh, Paul, I can't wait. I'm I'm excited for all three of those. <laughs> Same here, sir. That's great. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed this. Please let us know. Do you prefer our drinking game episodes, or uh, or did this uh, did this sort of suit you? Do you prefer getting hammered with hammer or? Uh, do you, do, you, do you like Hammer Pub? Uh, I don't know. I'd be very curious to hear. If you are out there listening, and I know you are, give us a yell. Hop on the Twitter. Tweet at us. That is at Scream Addicts. Uh, 
or you can uh, you can tweet at myself or Paul. Paul is at Paul is great three thousand two thousand. It's two thousand. I knew that. At Paul is great two thousand. Uh, I am at Jinx nineteen eighty one. That is J I N X one nine eight one. But just let us know what you think about this new run of Scream Addicts. Now that we've been talking about Hammer movies for a while, let us know if you prefer the drinking game or just the uh, the more chilled version where uh, we're not murdering our livers, murdering our livers. That was good. Paul, I, th- Paul, I think I nearly died. Just throwing well, that out there. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you're Same. still with us. Same here. And uh, I thought I thought this was still pretty fun, so I'm good. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was easily as unfocused as when we we drink a lot. So I think that's uh, <laughs> we're we're staying on brand. We we definitely went on a creep shoot creep show two sort of rant. So I I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks. We will see you back here next time for. Holy shit! What did I say it was? I haven't had that much to drink. Uh, Captain Clegg. Yes. On Hammerpub for <laughs> Captain Clegg, a.k.a. Night Creatures, which is also one of my favorite Hammer horror films. Now, if you want to do a little extra research before the next episode, not only should you watch Night Creatures, but if you can, seek out the Disney film Dr. Sin. That's Dr. S-Y-N, starring Patrick McGowan. Uh, it is based on the same folktale. So anyway, folks, until next time, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. And uh, you know what? I'm not going to go out on the last word here. Paul, sign us off. What do you have to say to listeners before I uh, cut the recording? Uh, Go watch more Hammer movies. Uh, Check out Creepshow 2. Uh, It's a great movie, Um, (sighs) specifically The Raft. Uh, So please make sure we watch that before next week because I will be revisiting it. Um, you know, and it will come up in the commentary. Uh, but yeah, Captain Clegg's great. Uh, it is on the same Universal Blu-ray release, and I hope everyone has a phenomenal week. And uh, look forward to seeing y'all back here, same time, same place, on the Hammer Pub. Did you have to tell them to watch Creepshow too? I, I did. They, I did. No, I no, was... they don't need that. They don't need that in their lives. They do. They tell, do. The, tell them to watch they more need. Hammer, if anything else. Tell them to watch the Quatermass <sighs> films, you know, that we haven't Fine. actually covered. But, but Creepshow Watch really... Quatermass in the Pit, because it's great. Quatermass. It's a great movie. Quatermass, sorry. I don't there's, know. No, there's no early R there. Quatermass. Well, you know, it's... it's... I, no, I know this. Here's the thing, Paul. I was, thing. I was right there. I, just... I, was, I was right there with you. <laughs> I can't tell you how many years I pronounce it Quartermass. And then I had a, uh, a British friend who uh, sort of uh, embarrassed me uh, for, uh, <laughs> for not what his name was. So, uh, you know, because Quartermass is a, is a big deal. Over okay. There, so. Okay. Quartermass. I apologize. Quartermass in the pit is a great Don't movie. apologize for that. Apologize for Creature 2. I won't. <laughs> it's a great movie. Solid. Good night, game. everyone. Good night. <laughs>